Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport. We're live. It's just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night. Uh, it's been a beautiful day here in central England. Hottest day of the year so far with temperatures in the southeast of England rising to 25 degrees Celsius and a good 22 of those. We're up here as well. In the next two hours it's the usual mix of drivel, speculation and possibly some facts as we look back at the sporting week and just past and forward to what is coming up in the next seven days. Up in London is our executive producer, Tim Gray. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. Uh, and joining me in the studio, our Formula One and two-wheeler correspondent, Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, John. And, Good, e- uh, on. Good evening, everybody. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and also making a special guest appearance at Hindhoff Towers, having eaten us out of house and mushroom resort always, Paul Trustwell. Good evening, Paul. Hello, John, and hello, everybody else. Excellent stuff. Uh, and on a packed programme tonight, Tim, we have what? Uh, we have all the usual features. We Excellent. have news. Uh, we have uh, Marshall Pruitt, I believe, uh, talking to us about uh, events that he didn't witness firsthand. Um, but he might also talk about things that he did witness firsthand. I don't know. Um and uh, as you say, Paul Truswell is with us to tell us everything we didn't know and didn't know that we didn't know about what happened at Silverstone at the weekend. Yes. And that will be coming uh, in the probably in the first hour of the programme, will Second hour of the programme. Oh, Do you okay, not Paul read the running order? I, I think I sh- I want, I'm going to add a really important uh, question for Paul. He said he wants to pre I want to know what was the strongest gust of wind during the race. What ah. was the windy it was? Because it was blooming blowy a couple of times. It was. I've got that here, actually. Ha-ha! <laughs> so you can't, can't fall in. Yes. That's the second hour of the, uh, second hour of the programme. You need to know the wind, is it? Yes. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll have wind in the second hour of the programme. Uh, uh, not very... I have to say, not very good uh, apologies for absence tonight. A lot of people saying they are going to be listening, which is fantastic. Uh, and... In that the, case, I don't need to apologise. No, I don't think anybody needs to apologise. There were a couple uh, earlier... Someone said he couldn't uh, listen live because he was racing radio-controlled cars, for which I yes, think I we did should see find that. Nick, because he's the one who's encouraging that sort of behaviour. Indeed. Indeed. Deviancy. I, pers- I think it's brilliant. Actually, a man out there racing, just scale racing, fantastic stuff. Wednesday night racing? Yeah, it's good, good fun. All good fun. Right, where did I put my telephone? That's going to be coming important lately. Later. All right. Uh, shall we kick off, then? Uh, if you want to. See if I can do something else without moving my fingers. Hang on. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Wow, that's clever. 
are you are you t- <laughs> are you are you trying out something new this week? Yes. All right. Okay. This is going to be fun. Sorry, Nick. Go ahead. Was that a new jingle? Because that's the first I've ever heard the jingles at an actually listenable volume. So was that a new one? No. Oh, okay. Uh, we're going to start with Formula One. Yay! Because our Formula One correspondent Nick Damon's here. Double yay! Uh, but the Chinese Grand Prix seems so long ago that I can barely remember it. And neither can anybody who saw it. it was, I don't think it was particularly <laughs> memorable. I think, you know... Yeah, it was, it was ah, the one on. where Nico complained that he couldn't overtake Lewis and then told Nico to drive faster. Uh, sorry, told, told Lewis, Lewis to drive faster. He was going right. too yes, slowly. He did explain, so he did explain why that was. You're going too slowly. I can't overtake you. That's because it's too hot in his tyres. Though mm. so Lewis said, if I'm going too slowly, you should just overtake me. And in fairness, uh, that's what Lewis did last year. He just overtook him. Though it does appear that these cars are even harder to follow than they were last year, so... It's he, Lewis was deliberately backing up Nico into the Ferraris. He wasn't. I think, actually, sometimes you actually give people too much Machiavellian um, Not when it's Lewis Hamilton. He has I, the size of a planet. No, I think he was doing. He, he was going the speed he needed to go to win the race. That, by coincidence, happened to be a speed that backed uh, Rosberg by into... By coincidence? Into... Hang on, uh, we're talking about times and Paul has raised his finger. Go for it, Paul. Hang on. It, it, it's all to do with tyres. Yes. Um, and it was all about tyre preservation or tyre um, maximum effectivization. That's a good Ooh, word. Excellent. Isn't it? Excellent. Joins um, the dictionary there. Brilliant. Um, and, <laughs> and Trust Wells Thesaurus. Uh, effectivization. Uh, and that's why with Lewis Z. wasn't going as fast as Nico was at that point in the race. He was going as fast as he needs to go. Yes. Uh, and to hell with his teammates. And, Who and was it that what, said. Why uh, should that be a problem? Colin Chapman. Was it? Jackie Stewart and I one man of and everybody who's ever been clever and won a race. Uh, to finish the sentence that uh, you probably all know, because Nick and John obviously preempted it, uh, the best way to win a race is by driving as slowly as you can. That was Fangio. That right. was Fangio. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the fact was that Hamilton effectively has now got himself so far inside uh, Nico's head that, um, if, you know, effectively he's... Well, he's like burning his his burning It's like a little his leech neurons. through his nose. That's how far in his I head c- he I is. I couldn't think of a simile there which wasn't slightly unpleasant. And a leech in his nose is better than any ones I could think of. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact was that once the cars went off the medium tyres, onto the, the sorry, off the soft tyres onto the medium tyres, uh, the fry was no match. Mercedes were just being careful. Um, Williams were third. And overall, um, I think the problem, the, the, it, what has happened is I think we are now seeing um, a genuine issue. And the genuine issue is that in the amendments they've made to the front wing, combined with the let's make the show better with your fragile tyres, uh, they've now made a perfect storm where people can't follow behind anyone anymore. Um, because the hot, the, the they can't get close because they, they wipe out an understeer. And they can't get close because it's too hot and destroys the tyres. So... Um, that's not just the tyres, though. That has to be a function of the aero. Yes, because they've, they've changed that. They changed the wings, front wings this mm, year. Exactly. And the aero now means you can't follow. It also means that the aero is. You know, the reason you don't want to follow a car is because you've got aero. There was plenty of people following down in 13th and 14th position, though, weren't they? Side by side, front to back, 
bumping people that's up the because, gearbox. Well, that's because the people who were following had some form of actual physical advantage. The people that be it they got the DRS, the person who made a mistake because they passed a mouth and Um but, um, or as somebody right when there, it when... may have been Fran Bleasdale who tweeted, thank goodness for the, what was it, glorious ineptitude, I think, of That's Pastor Man- Man- But if you think about it, if, you, if Lewis Hampton's going as fast as he needs to go, uh, you're not going to get past him. He's not going to make a mistake. You can't get close to him because your car's the same as his. He's going to win. Rosberg's only chance now is to start getting some pole positions. Otherwise, he's going to be so far behind by he's the time gonna he He's going to win the championship. Pardon? He's going to win the championship. Rosberg? Yeah. Because I said so. Yeah, that works that well normally. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, F1, it has gone fab- terrible race, good race, terrible race, though it was less terrible than the. I than think Australia. it's really interesting, actually. No, I do. I think it's really interesting that endurance racing and Formula One have completely and utterly swapped scripts. I said this on Sunday, you wouldn't have heard it because you were working on RadioLamont.com. Mm. And I was talking to the telly peoples. Yes. Um, in that, he really is working out the wind, by the way. Good, because I, 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 was, I was blown away by it. <laughs> oh, hey! Very good, I saw what you did there. In that, we've got in Formula One, an hour and 25, an hour and 30, thereabouts, which is actually an endurance race now. It's not a sprint anymore. It's an endurance race. It's about making everything last. Yep. Making your fuel allowance last, mm-hmm. because... In some races this year, you won't have enough to be able to go flat out. You can't drive the cars flat out anywhere because the tyres won't last. So you've got to do that thing, like you say, of backing everything off so you're never at 100% for very long. And well, even when you are, you're just doing it in short The telling bursts. thing was that the cars this year are Meantime, three sorry. seconds a lap faster mm-hmm. than they were last year. Mm. And the fastest lap was 0.3 slower. Because mm. they were so limited by what they could do. So what we're seeing is... So Formula One has become something that you drive at 85-90% at. And anybody who saw either European Le Mans series or the FIAWAC from Silverstone at the weekend realises now that whether it's a four or six hour race and you take six or seven pit stops, whatever it is, for your six hours, let's say you take seven, so that's eight segments. That's eight sprint races where if you're at the sharp end of the field, actually if you're in GT as well, you are flat out from the moment you come off the pit limiter till the moment you go back in. And if you're not, you're not winning the race. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a massive turnaround to the point where I'm losing interest in endurance racing because there's just there's not just enough endurance. For you. There's just not enough endurance in it, Nick. <laughs> That's what it is, Tim. <laughs> I mean, look, what's the point of having an endurance race <clears> if all you do for six hours is sprint for 45 minutes, having wheel-to-wheel action, people almost, in fact, actually banging each other off the track as if they were mm. Roman Grosjean and Pastor Maldonado in the last five minutes of the race. And then in Formula One, you've got people tootling around, having to stay two or three seconds apart. That's that's not what I want from me motorsport. It's all it's all gone horribly wrong. Sadly, Formula One cars. I know you're being very ironic and very sarcastic, but F1 has now, with its regulations and the tyres, has got to a point where it has, interestingly, continually regulated things to improve the show, and now end up completely destroying it. In that there is no show. Because every time they, they change the regulations to improve the show, the teams are clever enough that they find an advantage which well, negates the regulation change. Even so, but if you, if you turn around and had the, uh, the, the you know had tyres that didn't fall apart, and people could drive 
hard out. Yes, they'd still have to be careful with the fuel, but they could still decide they wanted to really go for someone and worry about the fuel later. Paul? I've got, yeah, I've got a thought on, on that. Is that um, uh, There's an analogy here within uh, American football. In When I first went over to America and I saw American football, and it just gave me this, this impression that there are rules upon rules upon rules, and the whole thing is layered. So you get your basic rules, and then you put some more rules on top of that to try and deal with the cases where there are problems with the rules that you've got on your bottom layer. And then above that, there's another layer of rules which kind of come in. And, and that's the way Formula One has gone, where there's just rules upon rules, and there's layers and layers and layers of these rules. Yes, if it's me... Of course, that doesn't count because that's a rule that was made for September. And, and it and it and that kind of gives me a problem because I sort of I want to strip. I mean, people talk about the purity of Formula One, but you, you want to strip away. And there isn't any I know, but there, there, there's there no purity people. anywhere anymore. No, no purity a... in F1. I think how we the last mm. time we were close to purity was '92. With the active suspension, Williams, when they banned active suspension, that's when you kind of said that's it for doing what you want. Innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, and 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 I think in a way that's where the WEC, I won't say triumphs, but where the WEC has captured more people's uh, imagination, because there is a bit more flexibility, and it's it's it's, it's not so constrained by the rules. Proscriptive you know, is the you, word that I use. Yes. Um, and as I say, I think the problem that Formula One has now got is that they've got so many layers. That well, it's the, like a safety they can't car. strip them all away. It's like the safety car issue that we were talking over a very good uh, mushroom risotto earlier on from the, resort, uh, the uh, responsible yeah, adult. There Is there even more than that left? There wasn't no, enough. Sadly. There's a lot of complaints to my left. Yeah, there. I know. <laughs> Paul eats, eats himself, eats his own weight every day. You know that, don't you? That's, what, over three pounds? Yes, exactly. Very light. Uh, as soon as you introduce a safety car into multi-class racing, and people say, "Well, gosh, I was in a I was in a GT car, and I was disadvantaged because I was, be- I was between the leader and my classmates, and I know, and my leader of the class got through, and he got a lap on me. Right, we'll make a rule for that. And then that happens, and then somebody goes, "Oh no, hang on a minute, but what happens if it's a Thursday? Exactly. And and the the GT2 is in front, but the the, the P2 is behind, and then there's a bloke who's out of position, and he's and he wants to go to the lavatory, and then oh, well, let's uh, make a yeah. rule for that. And all of a sudden, it takes 25 minutes for for something that should take one lap, and that's the purity of Code 60 or Full Course Yellow. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean I I just sat there uh, watching the race thinking this is what it's become and it's become that way because they've ladled change on change on change and they've not kind of worked out what how change A leads to change mm. B and how change B affects change A. Individually, none of them is a bad idea. Mm. No, no, no. Together, it's producing a complete dog breakfast mm. and it will continue to do that Apart from very odd specific places, various specific races, but you know we've got 19 races, John. My fear is that 15 are going to be very dull. Uh, RC <laughs> Racing. Um, every Michael Reese says thanks to Nick. 1993 was the last year of the cars being cutting edge. Chris Will uh, uh, agreeing. Rob Chalmers. Uh, saying, I agree with Paul Trustwell, F1 needs to sort of distill itself. It needs to understand what it can be and what it is before it truly promotes itself and, and places itself in motorsports. I think Paul Trustwell's point is if you keep papering over the cracks, eventually you lose sight of what you have, it's, it's, says Nick you just Holland. Keep, no, Nick's right. I mean, it's the same as I've said. They've, they've, they've introduced a number of rules which in 
isolation make a lot of sense then you throw them on top of each other and they're causing problems and I you know I am sad I will watch all the races this year well so will I but I'm not looking forward to any, you know I do I, I am a bit of a I do like Lewis so you know and even if he's, if he's but, so evil to spray a girl on the rostrum I still think I'm going to support but him but that in itself that was I'm not talking about the thing about the rostrum but uh, that is, is not a problem motor racing is I can't put this. I was going to say it is fundamentally boring. Uh, uh, motor race. <laughs> you spend three days finding out who's quickest, put them at the front, and then complain when the whole well, thing it, spreads out. Motor yes, race I mean, is no, not that's... designed for spectators. It's designed for the people taking part. That's a good point as well, Tim. Um, at least in Europe, that's true. Um, it's designed for the people who are paying the bills. The I, th- I think where where we kind of lose it, and if if the problem is if every race is exciting then it ceases to become exciting. No, I agree. And that's why, I mean, I'm old enough to remember a lot of races that I've been to, which have been, quite frankly, dull. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean there were bad races. <laughs> it just means the best man won and it was an easy win for it's him. It's the exciting to dull ratio that's the issue. It, it, well, well, exactly. You only need a couple of good races and they're, they're corkers. The interesting thing that, that I thought about the, the weekend was, I thought it was quite an interesting F1 race. I thought some of the best racing was outside of the points. You know, we saw some great side-by-side, three and four corners at a time, racing for 13, 14. In fact, yeah, I had mean, four fact, cars battling fact, for 15th really, on down. Uh, Williams down, so seventh down was fine. Well, in the teens, mate, the, those four cars that were battling in the teens, which were the two Red Bulls and the two McLarens, of course, which was, I think, 13th or 14th down over. No, you, you missed out uh, the joker in the pack, Mr. Madalano. Mm, well, I, I've supported him in the past as a previous race winner, but I thought he was cracking. He was crackingly poor last weekend. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think, you know, it's, it, there are a number of problems, and, and you know, it's they, they haven't gone the complete... Three, uh, 180 from oh it's marvellous Ferrari back into it. it's not quite so marvellous but um, I'm not expecting an exciting season TM uh, let's move on is there uh, anything how, more yes how do we know that the Ferrari is a good car this year because Kimi Raikkonen has been nice about it and it's won a race he's not only being nice about it our winning races doesn't mean you've necessarily got a good car it just means that on the day it was better than the others uh, <laughs> Not necessarily. It just means that the people running it have were made less mistakes in the case a of the one that Ferrari run. Yeah, fewer mistakes. Um, yeah. No, Nick was correct uh, that Kimi is enthused about it and actually putting some effort into it and nearly finishing on the podium. I know, and apparently he's, he's, he's down to two ice creams a day. Uh, what, 13 vodkas? Well, it wasn't wasn't quite as warm in uh, Shanghai as it had that been in true. Malaysia, Australia. So. No, I mean, he's got... Um, he didn't qualify particularly well. He started really well and that was it. Yeah, he got past the two Williams who have no ambition to do anything more than do what they're doing. Uh, and they went, oh, we're fifth and sixth, how lovely. Let's carry on trolling around. Um, and he drove a... They, they tried splitting the strategy slightly with Vettel, but it wasn't enough to, to in any way trouble Mercedes, who I thought rather paid them rather too much respect by mirroring their, their, their strategy. Didn't even need to. They had so much in reserve once they got on the hard tyres. At no point was Hamilton probably within three seconds of what he could have done if he, if he needed to. Okay. And also, by the way, I would say, Brighton's obviously taken a, uh, a PR pill because he started publishing pictures of his kid and things, hasn't he? You've seen that? He's no, doing the he's doing, kitten, did you see? His child. He was, doing the, right. he was doing the doting dad thing with his, you know, doing little kind of selfies with the family. Wow. I know. I'm shocked. He should be dressed in a gorilla suit and driving a speedboat. 
and being drunk somewhere, not having a little baby on your chest with your wife. Uh, what uh, is Renault's view on uh, Christian Horner and uh, Dietrich Mateschitz's uh, <laughs> recent comments? What, the printing and printable part or the not? The the part that's been announced publicly. It's it's all going to spur us on. Yes. We, but they are... Apparently, we're not worried about... Apparently, the they are person. completely shafted, though. Did you read this? No. They are completely shafted because they have a fundamental error in their pistons. Oh. Not a manufacturing error. A, a design, design error. Design yeah. error. Anima- which means that it takes six weeks to sort out. So but they're not allowed to change the... Uh, Safety reasons, anyway. it's fine for safety reasons. Of or course, yes, reliability it, it, would be, it would be... Uh, safety or security, national security yeah, reasons. reasons. It would no, be dangerous to continue can, running with they can change with it. designed pistons. They can change it. The only problem is that uh, there's no chance of change for this weekend. And they lost, what, three out of the four they lost last weekend. or uh, In spectacular. So they're going to uh, effectively blow more up. And when they blow them up, it means you lose the uppy-downy bit of the engine uh, regulation. They've already lost three uppy-downy bits. So... Um, the uh, Red Bulls will be starting from the pit lane by about, probably by about Monaco. and <laughs> Which is where you want to start from the pit lane. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it is a comprehensive, you know, mess up by by Renault. And 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 they've not been helped by um, having no support whatsoever from a company who, from, who is sponsored by their sister company with a tune of many millions of pounds. But, you know... Red Bull are so quick to do the slopey shoulder thing, it's not our fault. But I would like to point out their car isn't even as good as the Toro Rosso. Mm. Uh, what do Lotus think? Um, we can come third if we try really, really hard. What, is that their position? What do they think that they the can do position, if they don't try really, really hard? Come fourth. They'll come fourth. <laughs> do you agree? Um, yeah, probably. The, 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 the McLaren's not going to have a stellar improvement the Red Bull's completely high bound for months by this engine being useless Toro Rosso quite a nice car Salva's not got any money for development Force India's a joke uh, we've run out of teams now haven't we so yeah they come fourth do you mention Toro Rosso yeah I mean I think that they, they well they'll, they'll do better than Red Bull but they are, they will start suffering from uh, the, A the rear engine B they, yeah, they, they started brilliantly but the boys are going to make some mistakes aren't they mm. they're new but yeah, I mean, this is the this is the thing. I, mean, I I'm not quite sure why in year two of the new regulations we're in a bigger mess than we're in year one. As a group, as a group of of, of people at the grid, where do we um, where do we go next with Formula One? Uh, we go to bar, right? To hell in a handbasket. What I did like though, I did like the very positive noises coming from Manor, Marussia. Go on. They said Ferrari's resurgence in form is great for us. Well, it is. Because yeah, at some they... point in the season, they're going to get the same engine. <laughs> Do you really believe that? They're going to get an engine which is called a 2015 Ferrari engine. Yeah. It's so... interesting because Ferrari don't even pretend... Whilst Mercedes are absolutely positive that the AMG group and uh, the boys from uh, Bricksburg supply exactly the same specification to everybody, uh, Ferrari say their customer engines are different. Mm. They're back a couple of generations. When when, when Salba had the Ferrari engines, um, oh, Salba years doing ago, particularly badly, though, are they? No, but, but they had, I know when Ferrari used to do custom engines for Salba, at the start of the season, because they were new, they'd have the, almost exactly the same spec as Ferrari had, but they had to be at least five races behind after that. Mm. And they used to find eight to ten horsepower race in those days. Uh, so next we go to Bahrain. What's the name of the circuit? 
Sakir. Bahrain, Sakir. Sakir. Oh, Bahrain International Circuit. Circuit of Sakir. B-I-C. And what's Big. the name of the town where it is? Sakir. Sakir. What's the word beginning with M that I want you to say? Oh, Manama. Well, it's nowhere... <laughs> it's nowhere near Manama. <laughs> Manama is... <laughs> the capital. Tim's right on my wavelength. Totally <laughs> needs to be that's incredibly contrived. I just... I want to get that straight. Mm. We did the that last track. year. Not and, as good as that. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> we did that last year uh, where we only had uh, the first one. And John uh, kept saying, Manamar. And uh, obviously after the first one, we didn't have any more. Ah. But, we do but that's what it is. Now. And it will it be... It isn't, though. It's You're so silly. It's, it's 25 minutes away. And usually... Have you listened to this show before, Paul? Usually, <laughs> it starts... Usually, that's a good race. Bahrain has just been a good race. Well, how can Gatwick be called London Airport? Well, exactly. Luton's called London, so Stansted. Well, What's that so place in Oxfordshire near Blenheim that is called London Oxford Airport? Manchester's called London Manchester Airport. I don't know. London Northwest Airport. And I, I know what you mean, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so, yeah. Obviously, it, London South End, which is where uh, Bernie mm. flies from when he can't go from Biggin Hill. But the only actual London Airport is City of London, that's it. City Airport's anyone in London, isn't it? Yes. Even Heathrow's not in no, London. No, I think Heathrow, because it's inside the M25 just, I think I'd give that one... It's got an HA postcode. Ah, uh, no, well, OK, then that's, that's, uh, that's Hounslow, isn't it? That's Harrow. Harrow. In, mm-hmm. And in uh, Mimic Motorsport goes parochial. Mm. Okay, moving on. What's Stefano Domenicali's role now, Nick? Standing uh, at the back of my no, box. Handing out trophies for the F3 Euro Series. He's, he's Euro Series. He's, he's um, the single-seater commissioner. That's right. He is the FIA single-seater commissioner. How can be? How can he be FIA single-seater commissioner when he's he, he works for Audi? Because they don't make a single-seater. Ah. Uh, Do they? Okay. They make a sports car and they make a, a various uh, GT3 cars, none of which are single seaters officially. Mm. But I haven't seen a spare seat next to Andrew Ottera. Obviously, the. Uh, Very interesting. The Audi DTM car is actually made by. Delara. Who do makes do single do seaters. Uh, but yeah. that's. Uh, that's nothing by to be concerned about. Is this. He's going to produce the F2 regulations really soon? Yes. Very he soon. He had a long chat with uh, quite a few journals. What's GP2 going to do about that? Um, he had a long chat with quite a lot of journals at the weekend uh, at uh, Silverstone. And I was just singing his praises of how he'd managed to keep Ferrari together for much longer than Nick or I or indeed anyone else expected before they went back to waving still their went. arms. And still pointed. went. <laughs> Eventually, but not till after he'd gone. No, gone to a couple of years before and, they'd gone to pot. And it was held together by Alonso. And I'd said I thought he'd had a lot to do with that. And Graham was shaking his head at me, and I was going, what's the matter? I think Stefano Domenicali did a really good job. And he was standing behind me <laughs> in the TV box. Well, that's right. And he, he wouldn't let, he wouldn't come and talk to us. I said, come on, come and talk to us. And he ran away. <laughs> right. He literally ran away. Interesting. Yes, but anyway, so he's going to produce F2 regulations in the next couple of months, I believe. Yes. Which... What do we Given expect the them to be? I don't know. We've got. I don't see. Why do we need it? We've got GP2. Why do we? Why well, do we because need it's to... part of Gerhard Berger's master plan that he wasn't able to complete before he uh, he went. He left. Yeah. But what he's going to do is he's going to open up the chassis and the engine, right? Suppliers and tyre suppliers mm. to anybody who wants to do it, mm. and have closed 
cockpit bodies, mm. right? So anybody who hasn't got an LMP2 contract can build an F2 car. He has said open chassis. I've heard sillier ideas. Um, Obviously, Formula 3 has open chassis regulations. Uh, well, how how, how uh, well do they work? Well, they work brilliantly because everyone can choose to buy a Delara. That's right. Except in Australia when everyone chooses a Miguel for some reason. Okay. Didn't you know Miguel made them? They are the only other company that makes them. And Apparently uh, some Russian company makes them, Sam was saying, but they've been banned for something. Not being safe, I'd have thought. Mm. <coughs> no, not true. No. No, not true. Not being part of the cabal, I think, is the um, My My question is still, if you've got GP2, what do you need F2s for? Because they're doing exactly the same thing. So all that happens is one will die. Well, F3 and GP3 are doing the same thing, you could say. Or uh, Formula 4 and uh, Formula Renault. Yeah, but at the top, where it's horribly expensive... Kidlington. Have you got enough people... Is a correct answer. Yeah. Have you. you got enough More people to... Take to put 26 GP2 cars on the grid and 22 or 26 F2 cars on the grid. The answer is no. No, he's going to kill them all off and push them all into LMP3 and LMP2. That's what he's going to do. There's um there's not even enough uh, drivers with money to fill the GP2 grid this weekend. Really? really? Is it not full? That's the first time for years, isn't it? Uh, because Hilmer have decided that uh, uh, they're going to miss Bahrain. Every time you say that, I always think you're saying Hillman. Hillman. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're, they're also not going groups. to be taking part in uh, the Bahrain uh, GP2 Either. race. No. But Bathurst the good news is, no singer are! <laughs> Bathurst no more. Uh, in pre-season testing, they had uh, Nigel Melker, Sergio Canamassus, who has been announced... Didn't, have, didn't Nick Yelley have a go as well? And Nick Yellerly. Yes. Uh, so this is the second uh, team that... Uh, Nick Yellowley isn't going to be racing for this season. <laughs> well, actually, there's hundreds of teams not be racing for this, this season. No, but this is official. Officially, this is the not second one that he was announced as uh, racing, racing for, but he's not. He must racing have a for. very, very rubber checkbook. Hang on, hang on. Nick Yellowley will become a question in the Christmas quiz this year. I can feel it now. Or an answer. The next or round. an answer, indeed. Team Nick Yellowley can't be a question because it doesn't have a verb in it. <laughs> Nick Yellowley. Do, 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 do. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry, no. Nick Yellerly. There you go. How about Nick? Yellerly. Did Nick Yellerly? Maybe I word it. Yeah, so it's going to come out and it's going to be multi chassis and it's going to stamp on the feet of things that are already there and it'll be confusing. But you do get more super license points for F2, which doesn't exist, than you do for GPU that does. Yes. Which and is why it be a success. And for Formula Renault. There's, there's a piece of me. Which is saying this is a good idea, based on what I was saying before about stripping away all the Nonsense. layers. Mm-hmm. Um, because whilst Nick quite correctly says we've got a perfectly good GP2 category at the moment, a Formula 2 category is easy, easier to explain to somebody who doesn't understand motorsport. I struggle with football because when I was young, there used to be a first division, a second division, and a third division. And now the first division is actually the third division. That's I don't correct, know. Yes. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it's a bit like that with motorsport. So it's far easier if you have Formula 1, Formula 2, and Formula 3. And when you've got Formula 1, Formula 3, and GP2... Yes, actually, it's Formula 1, GP2, GP3 slash Formula 3, slash Formula 4, slash Formula Renault, slash anything else. MSA Formula. Yeah. And um, And then there's IndyCar. uh, Indeed. Which we'll come Um, on to later. That'd be good. It's quite damp, I always heard. Um, But no, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with... 
a, a governing body that makes decisions, sticks to them, and... Oh, and, and, and do you them. know there's a governing body anyway? Well, <laughs> that's why I said it in the way that I said it. Nick. I wouldn't mind a governing body making decisions based on the good of the sport, actually. that's I would like to see that happen more often. Um... Sport being the operative word, uh, John, because I, I do agree with you, mm. but I suspect that sport has long since exited stage left or right. Well, I tend to agree with you. Um, and the, 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 the reason why most of us got into this in the first place was actually the excitement of watching competitive drivers driving cars against one another mm. has now got to the stage where it's all driven by television revenues by uh, sponsorship revenues by manufacturer interest etc and that's just the way life is these days wash your mouth out says Rob Chalmers <laughs> uh, Nick Yellowley is the new Dan Camish uh, in terms of Christmas quiz questions and answers says Mortis Mardman no that's, <laughs> that won't be right um, <laughs> Actually, what is Dan Cavish doing? Who is doing? the new Dan Cavish? Answer. Or last year. You're very good. What's he doing? No, he's not doing F4. Uh, wait, wait, he's buying everything. Formula Ford. Do Dan Cavish is doing the Porsche Carrera Cup this year. Oh. oh, is he? And he won both the races at Brands Hatch on the opening weekend. Ah, oh, he's trying to get his. He's well trying done. to get a Porsche career. Good lad. Rob Jernet agrees with you, Nick. Won't it be driven? That might be a quiz question. Single seaters won't it be driven by points for super license? F2 will offer more than GP2. Uh, and Alfred Wallace, uh, the magnificently entitled Cad Pig, at Cad Pig, says, surely now it's switch, switched from sport to sports entertainment. Mm. Is that spentertainment then? <laughs> uh, well, we have sports entertainment already. We have NASCAR and British touring cars, and it's creeping growth of that moving on. Add spectatement and uh, at Reggio Le Mans, uh, if you want to take part. Nick, go on one more before so we one thing, one thing that isn't sports entertainment moment is F1. I don't want to get down, Nick, because I'm still a massive enthusiast. You're saying it's, it's neither. Well, it's not entertaining, is it? I, I think you have to I think you have to look pretty hard to find the entertainment. And the, and the biggest thing is, is that the last few years they've been all they've been bothered about is entertainment. They managed to get it wrong so much. They've made it less entertaining. I mean, I, don't forget, I actually was covering this during, the, during what is historically known as the dullest period ever, which was uh, the well, early, late 2001-2002. But there's a, there's a piece of me, though, that, that, that's, that, I mean, my, my um, now 14-year-old son, I was going to say my 13-year-old son, but he's had a birthday, my 14-year-old son will not miss a Grand Prix. He watches Good. every single Grand Good Prix lad. on television. Um, Neither will I. I'm too mean to give him Sky, so he watches either highlights if it's BBC or if he gets a live show on BBC, then he watches all the things that he can watch. Um, he has never been to... Well, he actually has gone to a Grand Prix because he went to a Grand Prix when he was tiny, but he doesn't he remember doesn't it. doesn't remember it. Um, you should take but, him to another one. Uh, well, yes. Spa, I mean, perhaps. And he, and he would dearly love to do that. Um, can you get a bank loan? But the point is that he would be blown away just by watching a Formula One car go past. And even though, I mean, I understand what you're saying, Nick, but whatever they sound like, however fast they're going, however spread out the field is, there is still something about standing next to a racetrack at a corner and watching a car go past. The way that, whether it's a Formula One car, WEC car, even some of the lesser category cars, they're just exciting to watch. And... I, I I do know what you mean, but there is this boyish enthusiast mm-hmm. inside me that 
was bitterly disappointed last weekend that I couldn't get to Silverstone to watch it because I would have loved to have been there. And it, it's that there's something about standing beside a track and watching racing cars, which is great. It's something about watching. I, I still go up at ten to seven to watch, to get up in time to see the start of the Chinese Grand Prix, even though I wasn't expecting anything. But I still get up because yeah. I still want it to be. And what, something might have happened. Something exactly. different might have happened. What you have to remember is I've had a life prepared for this because I'm a Gillingham fan. So I spent my entire <laughs> time going to sporting events hoping for a miracle, which mm. is normally a home win. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I was gonna, Any uh, kind uh, of win. <laughs> I, I, I was going to liken it to, to listening to The Archers. You have to sit through episodes and episodes and episodes of The Archers before anything exciting happens, although I think that's changing more recently. Um, shocking. It is, I know. It's Those- a- they won't bring the cows in on time. Didn't and... think you were going to get an archer's mention in tonight's midweek motorsport, did you? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, where were we up to? Oh, um... there is still, for quite a lot of people, there's there's still just the thrill of seeing the car go by. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I, no, think no, so. I, I, I don't I'm disagree not, with I'm that. I'm not writing it off. Unfortunately, saying... I think that the majority of people who go to a race now... Um, unfortunately just want to go to say that they've been I don't think they go to actually see the race it's an event and there's nothing wrong with it being an event I think there's um, I, I, I hear what you say John and I think there's an element of that um, partly brought about by the the nature of sporting events and it was interesting the phrase that was used about sports entertainment um, VIP hospitality, uh, having the best seat in the house and looking, you know, uh, um, rather than just going and standing beside the fence with your nose pressed up against the fence. Um, And and I think that, um, again, going back to when I first started going to car races, I mean, we didn't sit in the grandstand or, I mean, didn't dream of having hospitality. but there is an expectation now when you go to a Grand Prix that you're going to have a big screen, you're going to have um, commentary available on radio, uh, you're going to have the the screen will show you replays of anything that happens. Might as well sit at home if you can do that. And and, and what exactly so? I mean, I mean even the teams. I was, I was impressed very recently. I've, I've recently watched, and I'm going to keep on plugging this um, DVD slash film. Um, if you're not winning, you're not trying, which is a story of Team Lotus from 1973. And I was impressed on that by the way that the team managers, you know, it was, the film was based on Colin Chapman, following Colin Chapman. Um, and you could see him with his lap chart on his knee, sitting on the pit wall, watching the race from the pit wall. Of course. And he was Where shouting, else would he be doing it well, from? Because there wasn't any TV screens Correct. back in the garage. Exactly. And, but you could see the enthusiasm and he was yelling at Ken Tyrrell down the pit wall, ha ha, we beat your cars into the first corner as the cars disappeared yep. off on the first lap because there was then a minute and a half of nothing happening yep. when they were just waiting for the cars to come back into view. When I worked for the BBC, when I very st- first started working, the first job you always got to do to, to tell you, to teach you how to edit and things like that you used to have to put this day in history packages together and I would order you'd do them you'd prepare them ahead and do a little script and voice them and then you'd put them on real real tape and you would be allowed to order archive material from the BBC in London which came up on vinyl records on vinyl discs with 126 cuts on them because they were all tiny just little bits from various things and of course I always used to do and it was more like this week in 1957 this week in 1965 and you do obviously five during monday through to mm. to friday each day and she put them together and 
I used to try and find the motor racing pieces. And it would be Raymond Baxter, live for the BBC, <laughs> going, right, well, they're, here's the okay. start, and off they go, and it's, you know, uh, Brabham from Hill, from whoever, from down, and down through the first corner, and then they go out, and out of my sight, and it's been a very interesting weekend this weekend, because I was talking to so-and-so in the paddock last week, and uh, yesterday, and they were saying this new uh, this new tyre, or this new engine, or whatever, or this new chap from so-and-so, and, oh, here they're coming back into my view now, oh, it's all changed, and he had no clue what exactly. had happened on the other side of the circuit. Exactly. But that was being broadcast live. And and the, the thing was, I mean, the, the teams didn't know either. I mean, you're exactly right, John. But I mean, if your team manager was basing his decisions that he was making on seeing the cars once every minute and a half. Yes. Um, and the order that they were coming past him in. And he had no idea. I mean, they could have been stopping for a picnic out on the other side of the sand dunes at Sandport. That was that was the, that was the terrible year, that wasn't it? When they all stopped for a, for a party halfway through, they Put came the back. board out and, they and came back. And it was pork pie or chicken <laughs> salad. Um, crazy dodge made us do it. As I say, I think nowadays we're trying to get back to the point. Now, nowadays, the 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 race is watched by the team in the pit garage, um, by the spectators. They're watching it on TV screens. Um, and the the way that you watch races is a is a different way of watching races than it was when I started going to motor races. It wasn't that long ago, um, but there is a an expectation now that you will be entertained when you go to a motor race. And somebody said the racing is actually for the competitors and the spectators just come along to watch it because it's exciting. Um, and I, and I think. I wouldn't say it's gone off the rails, but if there is a, a shift, a seismic shift, it's in that Formula One motorsport in general is now as much about bringing in the crowds as it is in providing a platform upon which competitors, manufacturers, teams can compete with one another. Full stop. We'll move on to MotoGP now. Okay. Uh, Nick Damon is our expert on two wheels. I act well. Apparently, uh, in, in this room, he is. Well. Has John left? <laughs> no, I'm still here. Uh, there was a race at the uh, Circuit of the Americas at the weekend. There was, which I haven't watched yet. I've got another oh, DVR. Sorry. No, it's alright. Uh, so on. John wants to. Sticky hit the two hundredth MotoGP. I knew that. Right. What do you know about Circuit of Americas and who was going to win before we got there? Who, al- tell- who always wins the Circuit of Americas? Uh, Mark Marquez. Well, Honda. Yes. It's a total Honda circuit. Yeah. And, of course, no pe- no Danny Pedrosa, because he was... Uh, um, Semi-retired. Trying to sort out his, his arm pump. Whether he comes back is the big question. And uh, the net result of that was, it, rather than being a Honda 1-2, just a Honda 1, as uh, Mark Marquez won. And controlled it quite intelligently. He controlled it at the front. Um Valentino Rossi got past Jorge Lorenzo quite early on to win the battle of the Yamahas, but couldn't get past, well, but he did get past Dovioso in the Ducati, then Dovioso got back as the tyres went off. Um, was so Bradley Smith quite high up there as well? He was sixth. 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 What? Top non-works bike. Actually, he was further up than that for a while. He had been he dropped back. Fourth, yeah. He was fourth, yeah, they, they, for third. The top four looked like they were getting away. Then it, I, I, I kind of sort of looked away, and the next thing he was... Fifth and then dropped the sixth. Yeah, just there, lost. Was, there was a little bit of tyre wear going on. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, there was course, t- the, it was the front tyres. Yeah, the fronts weren't, weren't, weren't holding yeah. on particularly well. The interesting thing is, of course, is that um, both the Ducatis ran out of fuel on the, on the wind-down lap. 
Well, they stopped anyway. Uh, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because they've just had their fuel capacity no, cut from 24 to 22. No, they will have it after this race. Oh, really? That's their third podium. Because Dovi, Dovi got on the podium. So they had three three podiums. You now lose two litres of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will be... Uh, well, obviously, they used it all. And therefore, they must have had some performance gain out of it. They'll have less. But they have the electronics will, will, will in some way, make sure they don't run out. They're quite clever electronics on, on bikes because they actually... The bike is constantly adjusting itself, knowing when it, where the end is. And just getting to the end. With where the end fuel. of what is? The race. It knows how right. the race is. And so, it basically, it's, it's, it's constantly really? changing the... Uh, power output of the engine by a small amount to make sure it gets the end on fuel. Uh, so yeah, I mean that has been a very good start by. So if we put a Ducati. bike in the studio, it mm. it could tell us when the end of the race would be. Well, it could tell us when the, end of the show would be. All right, okay. About it it might enough. not be able to tell us, but it would certainly know for itself. About three minutes later, we all do have the fumes. Is that, uh, it, I'm showing my total ignorance here. MotoGP is based on number of laps, not time. Yes, correct. Yes, it's a, it, the, normally the race is about 45 minutes long. But that right. ten, that, but obviously that'll vary depending. So, on it, so it's purely based on distance. The, the bike has to travel. Yeah, and you have 22 litres of fuel if you're a top works bike, and 24 litres of fuel if you're a uh, an open class bike. But they have a slightly different electronics package. That's the reason for it. Um, so yeah, so the basic fact is that obviously uh, Mark Marquez came back to form after his um, disappointment in Qatar. Um, Rossi beat Lorenzo again, which isn't bad for a man who's 35. And uh, he's still leading the championship. And I must be I haven't got the micro points here, but I would think the top three are very, very close. Let me see. I might actually have them, actually. So after two races, uh, the overall score is that Rossi has 41, Dovier has 40, and Mark Marquez has 36. So with 25 points for a win, it's quite close. And going back to your point about entertainment, um, MotoGP does seem to score on the entertainment yeah um, this was this this still this probably had 10 or 15 relevant overtakes not aided by anything apart from skill but would still be described as one of the duller races in MotoGP because it ended up being tire limited towards the end last five six laps were not exciting and do they get spectator uh good spectator figures yeah, huge well it's quite country country dependent but they get a good figure everywhere and when they're in southern europe they get massive numbers they get, mm. they get they get a genuine sixty thousand into Silverstone, so that means it's now it's, it's Silverstone's second biggest thing. Um, we got was it forty five thousand? They got the weekend for WC. Over three so, days. Yeah, so I think they're expecting more than that at uh, things like Silverstone Classic. But uh, mm. um, yeah, so uh, I, I just wonder if I'm trying to link these various strands of the show together. I suppose I just wonder if there's anything there that MotoGP can. Teach Formula One. Bike racing. The thing about bike racing is it is much much easier to overtake anyway. You know, if you if you've got a bit of an advantage, you you don't have to ride in someone's hot air because you can just move out four foot and you're all you know you're in clean air again. There's no aero effect. But it's very tiny amounts of aero, uh, slipstreaming a little bit. So you have a much purer battle. You're effectively really battling with 1960s F1 cars. You know, they're, they're grip limited and they've got no aero. So isn't there, isn't there something as well about the, ooh, how could I put it, the vulnerability of the rider? Um, you mm. know, his knees scraping along the. Yeah, it's very spectacular. I mean, it's you know, it's a very, it's a, yeah. You, you certainly the ride, you know exactly what the rider's doing. He's not, you know, obviously in, in WEC, you know, unless you're one of the few open top P2 cars, you don't even see the driver anymore. Mm. Uh, in F1, you see two-thirds of their helmet and if you're lucky the gloves um in motor gp you can see 
every well, single well, bit of them. Well, exactly, and you can you can kind of relate to the kind of potential of what might happen if something goes wrong a little bit more, can't you? You know, because uh, yeah. there, there is basically a human being on um, a massive bit of horsepower. But if, but if you look at any of the, the yeah, you know, World Superbike gets reasonable spectator numbers. Uh, British Superbike gets great numbers for UK motorsport. I mean, it, it's also kind of the thing with bikes. It's slightly different, really, in that you know, there's everyone can drive a car, and very few people who drive a car will ever go to a motor race. Whereas of the small percentage of people who ride a motorbike, a large percentage will actually follow the sport as well. Mm. It's that sort of club thing. Yes, you've mm. got the London commuters and the scooters. If you've actually got a proper motorcycle, more likely than not, you are very much into motorcycle sport as well. Mm. It's quite different. It's quite different. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural it's, thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a cultural and niche yeah. thing. It's kind of a, you know, it's a kind of a club, really. One of the things about that is it gives you somewhere to go on your bike. Which is a very good plus point, yeah. Uh, it, it is somewhere that you can go to on your bike and have a destination rather than just riding around in circles. You can go and watch someone else ride around in circles. Let's keep on, then you can ride home halfway. Yeah. No, but I think, I think yeah, visually, um, you know... Don't underestimate feeling part of a clan, doing something yeah. as a shared experience. No, that's great. I mean, I, I was absolutely... You know, I, when I was uh, young, I used to go to all the motor GP... Well, they weren't called motor GPs, and I used to go to the World Superbikes when, when there were a genuine 125,000 people at Brands Out. But that... Doing things as part of a shared experience... Um, that you know, that's part of the whole Le Mans thing, the endurance thing. Mm-hmm. You feel like you've been part of it, that you've been there for the six hours, the twelve hours, the twenty-four hours. It's like going to the movies. It's much better to see some movies in with with a crowd of people mm. watching comedy. It's better to be in a comedy club with people rather than watching it at home on a DVD. The material is exactly the same, but the shared experience is something to do with it. And I think that's one of the issues that Formula One has that people aren't going there for the shared experience. They're going there to say, I was there, and not interacting with people. And Formula One is exclusive rather than inclusive. And I, and I think that promotes that activity. Isn't, isn't there something about... I don't know if this works. Um, I, th- I, th- I mean, I, I don't know if I want to say Formula One is a family activity, but um, you're not going to take your family to a bike race because you can't get the family on the back of the bike. Mm-hmm. Um now, you may want to take the family to the car race and you may try and get the whole family involved, but it's difficult to do because um, the, the nature of what you've just described about bike racing is that it's a bit go on your own and then share the experience when you get there. It's not go as. Well, you tend now, on the whole, the best. The best bike trips when you go with a couple of your mates on bikes so mm. two or three of you know, obviously obviously one per bike absolutely you go down and, and roll it through but yeah I think it's an interesting you get thing. two per it, bike Nick it can but it ruins the handling uh, <laughs> even even very light svelte young ladies and I, yeah, I'm lucky enough to have one of those still it doesn't help the handling enough about your li- daughter though you're listening to Midweek Motorsport <laughs> it's ten to nine yes and it's time for our next uh, guest tonight and uh, today is the 15th of April which means yep. that in the last 28 days our uh, next guest has competed in five different races. Yeah. Go ahead. In three championships. Yeah. In two countries. Yeah. And it is Andy Prio who joins us now for the uh, next update on Andy Prio's Racing Diary. Hello, Andy. Can you hear us? Hello, guys. I've got you. We've had some communication problems tonight. Don't worry. We've got you now. That's the main thing. As Tim has just pointed out, uh, massively busy few days, few months, few weeks for you. We started off talking about your three 
different race series in three different BMWs. Um, and, well, you've, I think you've done one of each now, haven't you, just about? Yeah, that's right, guys. I've done, well, I've done, no, yeah, exactly, I've done one of each. I've done, well, both of the American uh, first races and had ELMS last weekend, and I caught a glimpse yeah. of you, John, working away in, in your little commentary booth there. And, um, yeah, and, and first BTCC race in Brands last weekend. So, been a busy lad, pretty much like you guys. We sort of caught up with you after the two American races. Let's take them in chronological order. Not the, certainly not the opening to the long distance races in the uh, Tudor United Sports Car Championship and the Patron North American Endurance Cup that you wanted. But do you feel as though you're getting to getting to grips again with with that form of racing and with the Turner Motorsport guys? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I had a great season last year with, with the Rahal guys and then, you know, switched to um, to Turner this year to do the long-distance races. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, not ideal, as you said, John. It's, um, you know, to be, to be, you know, two or three tenths off, you can say, hey, you know, I can find that in myself. But to be two or three seconds off, something's not quite right there. So, um, obviously, the BOP and I think all those things have gone against the Turner team and, it's one of those hard slugs. You've just got to put up with it and uh, try to come out the other side, you know, and uh, and see. see uh, hopefully it'll improve for those guys. Obviously, I've now made my, my way back to Europe and, you know, had a great brand first first race. And, uh, well, come on. Let, uh, let, last weekend, not so bad. Got to talk about that because we... we mentioned in that first uh, episode of Andy Prio's Racing Diary brought to us by uh, IHG Rewards Club and hashtag IHG Racing that you know it's competitive we knew it was going to be competitive you haven't been in the championship for a while and you only go out and put the damn thing on pole position <laughs> that's cool yeah I was really chuffed with that I mean I've only done four tests in the car but I just you know immediately clicked with a car and I'm really pleased with that, John, because that first race, nobody had ballast and uh, we're all equal. And um, it was nice to, to bag the first uh, first blood, let's say. But um, we got Donington this weekend and um, had a tough last weekend in, in ELMS. Had a fantastic race, but unfortunately didn't get what we wanted out of the, out of the weekend. But, you know, Europe, Europe's good and, uh, and we've got a couple of great, very, very sexy programs this year. So I'm very excited. The, the BTCC, as we said, fantastic opening to the campaign. Did it surprise you, Andy, that the IHG Rewards Club BMW was was so competitive and that, that you were so competitive? You can't really know until you, you get no. into the competition. It's not like you do lots of off-season testing with other people. That's it, John. You just never know, do you? I think in motor racing, you've got to expect the best and plan for the worst. And... Uh... Uh, you know, I, I felt confident confident in the car, and I feel really in a good place. You know, within my, myself and my driving and everything else. But um, you never know, mate. You just don't know what um, what's possible from the opposition. And uh, you know, it's never an easy, an easy. I've never had one easy lap in my in my life. So uh, if you go to every race, give 110 percent, and um, be the best you can be, sooner or later, uh, as Frank Williams says, cream always rises to the surface, and. Uh, uh, and, and my my chance with Brands Hatch and hopefully the rest of the year in British Touring Car. Not sure you knew this, but Matt Wood has just tweeted in at Spectatainment and at Radio Le Mans to point out that um, given that you had the final poll of O2, which was your last season in BTCC, and the first of 15, yeah. you did actually have two consecutive polls, and only only separated by 13 seasons. <laughs> 
I know, I know. That's what happens when you uh, when you get old like me. You, you, you've got big, big time gaps between your first and your last race. But uh, no, it, it's mm. tremendous to, to get the pole. And um, you know, obviously, 13 years ago, I, I sort of started my touring car career and, and ended Donington um, in the Honda on pole position with a car and package that was strong enough to win. And uh, I've had an amazing story since then, amazing journey with many years of BMW and to come back in a BMW in the one series and, and, and tag the pole again was, was, a, was great. And it was only after the weekend we realized that it was 13 years ago I had my last pole in British Touring Car. Thankfully, John, it wasn't 13 years ago since I had my last pole. That was Watkins Glen uh, last year in the uh, Rahal, um, in the Rahal BMW Z4. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty special, pretty special. The the round at, at Silverstone at the weekend, uh, obviously ELMS and uh, WEC together, first time we've seen that uh, GTE version of the the Z4. A lot of interest in that, and I noticed there was a lot of people around the garage as well. The Mark VDS guys have clearly done a cracking job to get that car prepared from the BMW Motorsport shell that it was just a few months ago. How did you feel that it... Uh, it performed on the European style of circuits. Of course, you've only driven it uh, that type of car in the States before. Yeah, listen, John, I'm really mega uber impressed with the with the team, Mark VDS. And I've been around a while. I've had a busy paper round. There's not many teams that I walk away from at the end of the day and say, hey, there's nothing more that they could do to improve, you know. And looking at the VDS guys, they really are world class and. Uh, they they produced a fantastic um, car this weekend. It's um, my qualifying went really well. I was uh, P4. In fact, that would have, my time would have put me P4 in the WEC grid as well. So I was pretty happy considering on the Dunlop control tire, and uh, I thought the quality session went really really well. The race um, we we weren't where we where we wanted to be. To be honest, we've. Um, we had a couple of issues, uh, a drive-through. Henri, uh, our gentleman driver, had a bit of uh, a bit of a knock at the beginning of the race, got turned around, and uh, Jesse also, and um, I had to take a drive-through for one of the other guys. So we kind of got knocked back a little bit, and ultimately fuel economy wasn't where we wanted it to be either. So we've got some work to do, but I think the potential's there, and uh, the potential is definitely in the team and the driver lineup to to get some nice results this year. So. It, it was fun, and I really love racing at Silverstone. It was nice to be back home. I was going to ask you that. I, the we always yeah. sort of say to the the drivers who have spent some time in Britain, what's it like coming back to race at the uh, the home circuits again? It, it, is it any advantage nowadays, or is the amount of sim time no. and practice that people get in kind of negate that? Yeah, listen. Any 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 pro driver now will be brilliant anywhere and um, you've got like you say the sim you've you've got um you've got all sorts of um opportunities data and, and just the level any modern professional racing driver has to be at now you, you in the old days you could use the home advantage but but nowadays everybody's just damn good and uh i think the only time maybe it can play in your hands is if you know for instance when it reaches 21 degrees the track drops in grip or <laughs> it's quick in the morning and it's slow in the evening or if it's wet, you know that there might be a stream here or uh, or grip there. Those are the things that potentially the home advantage can give you. But, hey, listen, I haven't really been racing at home for, for the last 13 years. So 
Um, there is no there is no real home track for me. However, Silverstone, the British Racing Drivers Club, and and everything about that place. Joe and I, my wife and I, started our career out there, so that's as close to home as I could ever possibly get it. So um, was delighted to be able to race there and and to use the British Racing Drivers Club suite as well, probably for the first time in a while. A couple of questions. I, I want to ask you about Donington in, in just a wee second, uh, but just want to ask you a couple of questions about about your roots in motorsport, which I think many people will know was hill climbing. Uh, it's gone through a yeah. few changes in the UK now. Thank goodness we've managed to save most of the good venues and well done to uh, people like David Grace and, and others who have been at the forefront of, of ensuring that. Uh, any thoughts about coming back and giving it a go? I've been I've been giving a, stand and, a standing invitation to go and have a try at a couple yeah. of places and, and uh, I need a few tips. So Fancy having another go at it? Hey, listen, buddy, you should have a go. It's so much fun. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's proper quick and proper dangerous, though. You've got to be prepared to, uh, to you know, to, to get stuck in and have a good go at it. But uh, I, I'd love to have a go in a, in a contemporary hill climb car with, you know, with a, with a new tyre and um, with, with just the new aero and traction control and, and all the gizmos these, these modern hill climb cars have. I mean, it would be an awesome buzz, but... The thing is, John, you know, I, I kind of left winning the championship and uh, it's not easy to go back and mm-hmm. just suddenly arrive at pace, you know, and everybody, everybody will remember me from, from when I was driving week in, week out, and it would be hard to to get to, uh, to to get up to speed with so little running in the car, but I'd love to have a go just to, to cross that one off the list, you know, to drive a contemporary modern Formula One hill climb car would just be absolutely awesome, but... I'll probably do it at the end of the season, not 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 halfway through, just in case we have a little skirmish, you know. No, very good. Nick <laughs> Nick Damon, who's sitting off to my right, has just said. Um, given that uh, it's all now tarmac, and one or two other people have had a go on it, would you fancy a go at Pikes Peak? I would love to do Pikes Peak. That is something I definitely would love to do. I watched uh, Logue um, set his uh, his record there, obviously, and also. Uh, Following Guy Martin's exploits and, and that sort of custom-built uh, motorbike that he put together for, for that one-off, and uh, I must say that would be something that I would definitely like to have a go at. It, it looks unbelievable, and I think they always say, don't they? If you're if you're going to go off, make sure you don't go off to the right, go off to the left. <laughs> it's about five five kilometre drop if you go off to the right-hand side of the track. So, so that that would definitely keep you uh, keep you on your toes. Uh, finally, this weekend, uh, another weekend, another race series, another IHG, couple of hotel nights for you, and you, I'm sure you must be platinum and butter status by now. Up to Donington Park, <laughs> uh, there's a few decent yeah. uh, IHG properties around there, if memory serves, uh, and and back to British Touring Car Duty. That's right. Yeah, we've got another another race weekend this weekend, and uh, have you guys seen the car? It looks fantastic, doesn't it? The IHG oh, it does. uh, livery looks absolutely mega i think i don't know what you think but just love it but yeah off this weekend uh donington uh just i'm leaving actually tomorrow morning i'm just, i'm sat here on the beautiful island of Guernsey at the moment but tomorrow morning i fly out do my rollout and um then i head up to donington and i'm looking forward to getting stuck in i've got a little bit of ballast on board and that's not because i've been having too many uh burgers but it's been uh, a good weekend at brand so i'm paying the price for that this weekend so I've uh, got a bit of ballast on board, but hopefully we can, uh, can get our sleeves rolled up and try and uh, try and get a, a good result for, for everybody there this weekend. And uh, 
I, I hope um, I hope we can close the gap to the Championship League. We're just two points off at the moment, and mm. uh, I'd like to reduce that gap if possible. Let's see. This is where we come down to what we were talking about with you in the first part of the IHG Rewards Club. Uh, Annie Prios Racing Diary, which was all about managing the tactics when you've got the when you've got the ballast on board. You've you've got to be realistic in the races where you're carrying that extra weight and make sure you score well enough um, to get keep yourself in the championship hunt. That's right. You've got you've got to be able to um, to, to finish these races, and you've got to know when a win's a win and when a, a finish is a finish. And you've got to let you, you've got to put your ego to the one side. Sometimes you're going to be scrapping around for P10 or P12 with 75 kilos on board and everyone thinks you're really average. And then the next day or the next race, you, you lose the ballast and you're fighting for the win and everyone thinks you're a hero again. So it's going to be an up and down season. Um, we've just got to take the rough with the smooth. And uh, and just I think, you know, if, if, uh, if, if a P10 is all the car can do, then finish P10, you know, yeah. and not try and be a hero, be P8 and end up... Uh, crawling back into the pits with three wheels on the wagon. So you've got to try and uh, stay pretty focused and, and, and humble at the same time and um, and just drive the best you can and think of the whole year and the big picture and uh, we'll see we'll see if we can put together a proper championship season. You know, that's, that's the goal anyway. Andy, I know how busy you are, so I know how precious your time is. We'll let you get back to Joe and the family and uh, thanks for joining us here on Midweek Motorsport. Cheers, mate. Yeah, can I just say thanks to you guys and, and RadioLamont.com for uh, for following me and it's great listening to you guys having a chat and I'm looking forward to the Murdo GP. More info on Murdo GP, please, guys. <laughs> I would like to know what's going on. All right, mate. That's Andy Prio. Right. Thank you, mate. Andy Prio, multiple world champion, of course, in uh, touring cars. Thoroughly nice bloke and his racing diary for 2015 here on RadioLamont.com brought to you, powered by IHG Rewards Club and hashtag IHG Racing. Just after five past nine on RadioLamont.com. Midweek motorsport. And if you thought that hour was packed with insights and comments, wait till you hear what's next. Uh, second hour of the programme to come, uh, we have American news. We have more guests. Uh, it's all still happening here at uh, Midweek Motorsport. Uh, we'll be looking as well at a little insight into uh, some testing that's going on at the moment. Top secret testing that perhaps wasn't quite as top secret as people might have expected it to be. We'll give you a little uh, look into that and speak to one of our favourite people here. And keep the... Keep the texts, keep the Twitter coming, at Specutainment, at Radio Le Mans. It's all happening here on the second hour with Paul Truswell, uh, Nick Damon, me, John Hindoff, a special guest coming up, and we'll be trying to speak to Marshall Pruitt here on RadioLeMond.com next on Midweek Motorsport. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. All the news from across the pond. If it happens over there, hear about it here. Midweek Motorsport. Well, a very busy weekend Indeed. of American motorsport, and Marshall Pruitt of Racer.com joins us on the. It seems only moments ago, Marshall, that you were here last week, and seven days is a long time in motorsport, mate. Oh, hang on. It would help uh, if I actually plugged you into the desk. Sorry, MP. Go ahead and talk to the world now. Hello, world. It's Marshall Pruitt. There we go. 
Hi, Heidi. Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, uh, I usually have no clue where I am. And this week in particular, I'm especially bewildered. But yeah, great, uh, boy, great six days in the UK, home for about two and a half days. And then I start my drive to Long Beach at about 6.30 tomorrow morning. Yeah, but so. you can drive. You don't have to get on another plane, thank goodness. And that's why I drive, actually. Every year I drive down to Long Beach because, A, I hate the Los Angeles airport, and B, a uh, lovely six hours in the car, no email, no mm. anything, just music or a podcast or something. And, yeah, so it's a nice little reset during a busy patch. Uh, lots to get through with you. And Tim wants to start with some good news. Yes, we have some good news from the uh, Pro Master Championship sent by Cooper Tires because Michael Johnson is out of hospital. He is, yeah, flying home today to Michigan. Uh, there are definitely some, uh, let's just say, some angels in the paddock that helped make that happen. Michael certainly isn't someone who comes from vast amount of uh, riches and resources. So, yeah, there are some good folks in the paddock who wish to remain nameless, uh, who helped uh, arrange all of that for Michael and his father. And, yeah, great news over the weekend. I was getting updates about him and uh, some of his progress. The, the accident or the crash that he had, uh, although he was, I guess you could say, okay in terms of no life-threatening injuries per se, uh, it was maybe worse than uh, presented to the world, which, you know, frankly, uh, I guess doesn't really matter. But the uh, long story short is young Michael, who has a lot of fans, a lot of supporters, is headed home to continue his recovery. Don't have a timeline and for when he'll be in a car next, but uh, we know racers, and we know that that's probably all he's thinking about right now. The uh, unfortunately, there wasn't great news from IndyCar again at the weekend. Not necessarily. I, I nearly made something go viral. Did you? Hashtag did you no do? laps. Oh, very good. No laps. <laughs> Very it, it made good. Martin Haven snort tea over his keyboard. Yeah. And even Will Power used it. Did he? Yes. Very good. Wow. Oh. In uh, fairness, in fairness. Should we guys, hear from Helio Castro Neves? Oh, go on then. Uh, oh, this Lord. is uh, Helio telling us uh, <laughs> what conditions were like at uh, New Orleans uh, at Everything the weekend. Everything was great. They were the best ever, but they were bad. There was a lot of that. Let's hear what Helio had to say. It was damp. There we go. It was damp. It was damp. That's the understatement. Now, look, you can't blame IndyCar completely, though, for the weather. For the weather. Because it never, never, rains, never rains in Louisiana at this time of year. Well, again, I'm not looking so much for the blame game. Maybe more of the so-did-you-talk-to-the-locals game. And, uh, yeah, my colleague Robin Miller spent a fair amount of time speaking with the locals at the track during the various downpours that kept cars from running. And most seemed to say that IndyCar had uh, chosen to come during uh, a two-week span where it just rains constantly. I've also heard... Um, uh, also heard from one very senior race official that uh, they asked the promoters, are you sure? Are you sure you want us to come during this period? And they said, yes, it should be fine. So uh, I think there's maybe a little bit of shared, quote, blame, but I also believe that uh, they will pay a little bit closer attention to the Farmer's Almanac next year and hopefully pick it'd be perfect to go there a little bit earlier maybe in february where it's not quite as wet and uh would maybe feed some of the series desire for an earlier start obviously the reason they go or went this weekend was because it's geographically close to um barber isn't it which is where they were the previous well, weekend 
I that don't. Right? That I can't. Uh, no. No. Uh, no. St. Peter's, yeah, no real geographic uh, significance. Obviously, they have to head to Long Beach for this weekend. So it just seemed to be the weekend that they chose. And I would say going forward is probably not going to be the weekend they choose next year. Or we hope. We really hope. Well, if Marco Andretti said, uh, and we don't have a recording of this, but uh, I've got it written down. He said, it was a bit of a disappointment. Sitting under yellow is boring. Yeah, not just for him, though. There was a decent crowd, Marshall. And, and in fact, that's a club circuit. That is a club circuit. And it's a bit of a stretch to think they could, you know, bring a major series to it. But I thought they did a pretty good job with the temporary bleachers. It actually looked like it would probably have raced quite well. And if Marco Andretti was bored under yellows, think what the poor guys and ladies who'd paid good money to sit in the mostly open bleachers and sit and watch cars going round behind a safety car were feeling. Yeah, and there's only so many opportunities you get to go into a new market, Mm. bring up whatever it is, whether I don't care if it's IndyCar, IMSA, NASCAR, whatever. You only get so many opportunities to to go to a place where motor racing has never had a footprint and try to impress them and get them to come back and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that's kind of what makes this a big disappointment. You hope... I mean, the, the, folks of, the folks of New Orleans are known as being very hardy and robust people. Uh, we're also obviously hoping that a wet and, you know, call it bad experience with IndyCar's first go-around won't limit folks' enthusiasm the second time around. But we'd also be ignorant to think that it won't have some kind of impact. So I'm not sure what they do. I've, I hope, we, I think everybody hopes, again, any series trying to make uh, – New ground, new fans in motorsport has success first time, second time around. But yeah, this just really wasn't a misfire that they that the series needed, especially coming off of St. Pete, which <clears throat> I think history will remember is the race where uh, body parts and pieces went flying and a pregnant woman was hurt. So two races in a row that uh, maybe fell either flat or just fell flat on their face. Do we hear from James Hinchcliffe? Don't know if that's what we needed. Yes. James Hinchcliffe uh, speaking after the race, Tim? Yes. I feel bad for the fans that we had so much yellow. It, it's, it really is unfortunate, you know, because a lot of good cars had really bad days, and um, I, I feel bad for those guys, certainly. And like I said, the, the big loser here was the fans because they didn't get as much green flag racing as, uh, as we would have liked and as they would have liked. I think back to TK's comment in the, the post-St. Pete press conference about just having to not run into each other as much, and clearly that didn't happen. But, you know, part of it was just tricky conditions. I mean, there was a river running across the last corner. There's a reason why we saw a lot of guys spinning coming to restarts. You know, when you're on slicks and there are still puddles and rivers running across the track, it's not easy. And uh biggest one was car sickness. Um, all those yellows, man, weaving back and forth and accelerating and braking, I literally felt like I was going to throw up in my helmet. You know, when we started having those cautions there, after the, ori- the original sort of stops and switch to slicks, the track wasn't too bad because we had been running. Once we started going yellow and yellow and yellow, the puddles kind of started growing and growing and growing. And, yeah, the, the first guy threw them is usually in, uh, in the worst position. So we were, we were lucky to hold on there. We're trying our best, obviously, to keep the car on the pavement. But it, there was, our cars are not supposed to be in those conditions, you know. Bit of bonus helio at the end there. Uh, yeah. Third in the race was James Jakes, and uh, he was asked in the press conference. Uh, he, of course, is uh, James Hinchcliffe's teammate. He was asked whether he was happy for Hinch. Uh, it's great. I wish I was up there you instead of him. I was but, about to uh, say that. You want <laughs> yeah. you to be there. I mean, I like him, but not that much. <laughs> um, 
Yes, moving moving yes. straight along. Uh, uh, there next was race. Uh, sorry on, before we move on to the next race. There was an incident in the pits as well, wasn't there? Where uh, there was Todd Phillips, who was a crew member, he's uh, the crew chief for, actually. Crew chief, yeah. Francesco Draconi uh, was hit and thrown into the air. Only suffered cuts though. It's very lucky the car came in sideways, lo- lo- lost it on the, the way into the pits. I noticed that um, the video from the pit box camera, Marshall, was retweeted by none other than Eduardo Freitas saying, when we tell you you have to wear protective clothing in the pits, and people go, yeah, why do we have to do that? This is why. Um, very, very lucky. Although I have to say that the medical services were pretty quickly on the scene to, to make sure he was okay. Yeah, what what troubled me about that, Heindy, was if you watch the rate of speed that Draconi was traveling, knowing that he's essentially the first pit box, knowing that that section of pit lane was wet and had been wet, uh, if you look at the rate of speed he's traveling when he spins and when he hits Todd Phillips and when Todd Phillips is effectively turned into a human windmill spinning over the back of the car, you would think that Draconi's pit stall was three or four boxes further down. You know, call it 50 feet, 100 feet further down. So if you just look at the rate of speed he was traveling, and when he would have, when he should have started to slow and stop, there's a huge disconnect. So obviously the kid didn't hit him on purpose. None of we know. None of this was on purpose. It was a mistake. But the troubling part to me is just the lack of situational awareness. The guys running, you know, look, this is Francesco Draconi, a paying driver, the paying driver of paying drivers in IndyCar. He's the only one in a field of 23 to 24 cars who stands out as someone who's, you know, truly not one with a a, a genuine shot at succeeding at any point in time. Again, that's perfectly fine. The part that's frustrating is knowing that he was not – there was no need for him to rush into pit lane to either pick up a position or improve his competitive stance. None of those things are on the table. Uh, so for a, a, essentially IndyCar's one true backmarker to barge onto pit lane at an, an impossible rate of speed on wet tarmac – and then spin trying to slow his car and you know uh, send his crew chief flying through the air that that troubles me that tells me that there's some sort of again situational understanding uh that did not take place there weren't 10 cars stacked behind him and he felt you know like you do in the highway maybe and there's a bunch of cars right behind you wanting to get by and you feel pressured to speed up and move none none of these things happened it was just simply him misjudging everything and causing one of his own crew members harm so it's been penalized ten thousand dollars yeah been put on probation um i don't know if this is going to help the situation uh, but I can tell you that I don't think he – I think whatever credit he might have had coming into the season as a paying driver, uh, as really the one driver who stands out among a fairly strong field, um, I don't know if he's going to be afforded uh, any more opportunities to uh, really uh, get things wrong again. Uh, you mentioned the protective clothing uh, there and uh, Eduardo Freitas' tweet. Um, two other crew members were also fined for not wearing their helmets or not having the visor down on their helmet uh, during that race. So IndyCar taking that very seriously. 
As rightly they should. Uh, it, it is one of the, th- you know, there's no point having safety rules and not keeping to them. The only thing that I would say is, hopefully, the people who spotted that went and told them to put it right instead of just letting them stand there without it. That was one of the things that Dick Martin in the pit lane of of the American Le Mans series and the European Le Mans series when he was over here um, was very, very good at. He would slap visors down if they hadn't been put down before refuelling. He would... You know, then you know you'd probably get one gimme from him, Marshall. But then after yeah, that, yeah. it was going to be fine. But if you're spotting that before a car's come in, you've got to make sure that the guys are are properly protected, haven't you? Completely. Uh, I think Dick Martin's approach, and uh, many, uh, frankly, I think you'll find that in most of the proper racing series, the officials on pit lane, the folks in uh, you know race control. Uh, most of them are not sitting there with their, you know, little police ticket book waiting to yeah. just, you know, fill fill them out. They're more interested in the race uh, going off without any problems with their and and with everyone completely safe. So yes, I think if uh, you you see that happening, you try and attend to that quickly. But at the same time, you know, Brian Barnhart, uh, who's now the senior person in race control, uh, this does fit. Uh, the way that uh, he did things when he was in control last time. And uh, I'm not a big fan of fines because knowing the tight economic situation, at least in North America, there aren't a lot of teams that are capable of of handing over $500, $1,000 on a routine basis without it hurting. And I know you might say, wait a minute, they spend millions of dollars. What's 500? Well, the reality is uh, the dollars are incredibly tight. That's just a fact. So personally, I would rather see it in the form of, hey, uh, you know, opening practice at the next round, you're, you know, you just forfeited the first five minutes or the last five. I'd I'd rather see their, I'd rather see some sort of meaningful penalty. The $500 they can give hope that will affect some sort of change time is really what teams need more than anything else so um i wonder if maybe that's a better way to go at trying to correct behavior one final question for you marshall um have you spoken to robin miller since the race yes i have Uh, because i watched the tv coverage uh, and he interviewed jack hawksworth and me as an Englishman, I couldn't understand a word that Jack Hawksworth said. Uh, <laughs> so how did Robin cope? Well, see, so you, Tim, you're kind of tapping into one of my little private dreams, and I can make it happen. It, it, it would just be cruel. So, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but there's a part of me that wants to hand Jack Hawksworth a microphone, hand his teammate Takuma Sato a microphone, and have the two of them interview each other. And uh, <laughs> my, my concern is we would have to have two people there giving live interpretations uh, because, frankly, Takuma's English, uh, I think, might be easier to understand than good old yeah. Jack's. But Can we do uh, this again, at Long Beach and uh, we'll uh, subtitle it? That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah, so again, the team's mad at me. The team's already mad at me for saying that they'd be fool- they were foolish to keep Sato. So I'm not sure if they're going to acquiesce to this one. But uh, you we'll know, give it a go. I, I will. I'm prepared to put a microphone between the pair of them and have them interview each other. I'll do that. You film it. Uh, before we let you go, MP, uh, it's another IndyCar race this weekend. And as someone says, we've had a wingless race. 
Uh, now we've moved on to a greenless race, virtually. And we go to the unforgiving streets of Long Beach with IndyCar next. I'm not even going to ask you what you think might happen there. But I do want to talk about IMSA at Long Beach because it is the third round of the Tudor United Sports Car Championship at the weekend. And this is the first of the split races. And it kind of hasn't quite worked out, I think, the way that IMSA might have wanted it. Uh, with the pro categories not mustering 20 cars this weekend. Yeah, again, mate, uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a, uh, a reality check coming home from Silverstone where, I mean, everyone's happy, there's energy in the air, positivity, growth in all the classes, etc. Um, yeah, I mean, the reality is maybe you say, hey, the finest pro drivers and IMSA has to offer will be there on display at Long Beach. Unfortunately, there just aren't enough of them. Uh, we have the, and I'm just general numbers, we have the roughly 9 to 10 full-time pro uh, GT Le Mans cars, and then we have something in the similar number uh, for prototypes. And, you know, uh, numerically, the grid will not be that impressive. But I think in terms of quality, there's no argument. Uh, we're going to see a high-quality field. So could it would it benefit from uh, a pair of ESM uh, HPDs or Liges? Oh, Absolutely. you read my mind. You read my mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. The problem with this for me, Marshall, is I know that the car manufacturers want to be at this event because of the prestige and because of the size of the market that California, and particularly that part of California is, a lot of them even have their US or even global headquarters not far up the road at Irvine. It seems to be um, Automotive City up there. But with that money being almost exclusively now in the GTLM category uh, of the American Le Mans series, um, it's... <laughs> It just doesn't look great only having 17, 18 cars out there for, let's not forget, the shortest race. What is it, just 100 minutes this weekend? It's a long way for people to come from Europe for a, a race that is not as long as a WEC practice session. It also speaks to something else, Heindy, and maybe this is something IMSA can consider for next year's event or otherwise. I know the, attra the, the attraction is clear for the manufacturers, specifically in GTLM, uh, also known as GTE in the WEC and at Le Mans. Attraction is clear, to your point. Uh, so many manufacturers are either based in Southern California, their uh, arms are based in SoCal, or they have offices and such. But one of the things that we've lost in recent years, this isn't a blame thing. It's not uh, IMSA's fault or anyone's fault per se, but the ability for someone to say, hey, so, you know, the sport, the big sports car series is going to be at Long Beach. I want to come out for that one. Well, how many people are sitting around with GTE slash GTLM cars in North America that are collecting dust that they can go do this and play? How many teams are sitting on 2014 or 2015 spec Daytona prototypes and mm. P2s that are just – there aren't mm. – no. uh, you know, so we're, we're, it's not an elective thing. It's a case of we're going there with classes that uh, the the optional subscription rate just doesn't really exist. So that might be something for IMSA to, con to consider. You have some decidedly special events. 
which classes fit best, which ones would people most likely want to go and participate in. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're looking at classes where, frankly, there's no inventory, there's really no inventory in North America of GTLM cars that people, you know, privateers or otherwise can go run, though, that's an issue. Same in prototype. And GTLM, frankly, really isn't a privateer class. So that is an another added governor. So uh, it's hard to see how you get out of this 18 car grid thing, Heidi, unless you look at uh, which classes really would suit the track best. Uh, I, I will place in evidence here, Matt Wood reminds me that ELMS had 21 cars for four classes in 09 uh, at Long Beach. And he says he'd take the small field versus of lots of full course yellow. You can't have lots of full course yellow because there's not that much race uh, to start with, it only takes two cars to make a race. And we saw that at Silverstone at the weekend. It wasn't always the same two cars. But my goodness me, did we have plenty of racing. And I'll take that, obviously, live on IMSA Radio uh, throughout the weekend. Friday uh, and Saturday are the uh, two events. Check the front page here at Radio Le Mans for details. I, I just hope we get good racing, Marshall. I don't care whether there's... 18 cars or 8 cars there, if it's a good race and the 100 minutes is packed full of action, then nobody's going to care whether there was 18 or 88 cars there. Uh, understood, and I completely agree with that. The only thing I, I would add, and it's not maybe so much of a counter, but I made this point probably two weeks ago. IMSA, or under the Tudor United Sports Car Championship, guys, it's two years old. It's now in its second season. Uh, while a series is attempting to grow, trying to show that it is viable, that it is built for the future, that there's positive momentum behind it, it's hard to go to a marquee event like Long Beach in front of you know all the major uh, industry magazines, all the other major manufacturers and series and put a relatively small grid on track so that uh, you know we could have the most amazing 18 car race ever in the history of the world i get that just saying if you're trying to show people invest in us believe in where we're going we are successful we are strong numbers are a pretty big indicator right just like tv ratings uh you can have the best racing in the world but if sponsors keep seeing low tv ratings uh, they're probably going to be apprehensive to opt in Car grids do matter when you get to some of these big events where everyone's there. It's easy when you're off at VIR, which we all love, but yep. admittedly the world isn't there to see it. When you're sitting on the grid and there's eight rows, maybe nine rows, it just makes things a little bit harder to sell your growth and prosperity when it isn't sitting in front of you. Uh, Marshall, thank you very much. I look forward to catching up with you in California at the weekend. Full live coverage, of course, of the uh, IMSA series at the weekend, the Tudor United Sports Car Championship, Friday and Saturday for practice uh, on Friday, qualifying and the race on, excuse me, practice and qualifying on Friday, uh, warm-up and the race on Saturday. MP, Marshall Pruitt from Racer.com, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks, mate, and get ready for some uh, chicken and waffles Friday night. Oh, love it. I like that idea. Marshall Pru were talking about food, and it's in and out burgers as well on the way from the airport, quite clearly. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's exactly half past nine on a Wednesday night. We're live, and we cross now to a secret location and say good evening. Uh, well, it's good afternoon from where he is, so that'll give you half an idea of where he's in the world. To Darren Cox, the man at the top of uh, Nismo in the world. Hello, Darren. Hi, John. How are you doing? I am very well indeed. Um, is the car out? <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, 
It's not at the moment, no. We're it, it's um, we're right between wets and dries, and um, uh, this circuit that we're at is a brand new circuit, so the drainage isn't great. So if you go out on slicks, uh, there's a few rivers running across it, so the it's going a little bit squirrely over the rivers, as you can imagine. So we're just taking a slight pause, um, and we either needed to get drier or wetter, but uh, it's um, right in between at the moment. Where exactly are you? You you're at the, the National Corvette Museum, aren't you? I can see the uh, National Corvette Museum from where I'm sat. Yes. Uh, the this was meant to be a bit of a secret test. There's, uh, but the, there happens to be a webcam. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. wasn't a test. We didn't do anything secret. All right. Okay. All right. But I don't think you knew that there was a webcam pointing at the truck, and you we know didn't... that some of our listeners have been timing you past the third tree on the left and put and working out average lap times and things like that. Yeah, yeah, no, we didn't know there was a webcam there, but as soon as we knew, then um, we were amongst the first to be uh, telling everyone about it. So, um, no, it's great to see um, everybody on Twitter. There's actually an amusing, if if you check my Twitter feed, there's some amusing banter on there um, <laughs> uh, over the last couple of days. Um, someone's done a brilliant uh, um, posting of my face over the webcam camera that's trying to block funny. out the, the view, which is very funny. So, no, we, no, that's what we like. We like the fans getting involved and... Um, yeah, it's great that we've got the webcams on. In fact, it gave us an idea, we, you know, next time maybe we'll set some webcams up closer to the circuit for the fans just to, to look in at because we've had such a good response to it. So, um, no, uh, nothing's ever secret. Of course, you know, we would have liked to have kept this place secret because, um, you know, it's a fantastic facility. And uh, I think um, Corvette, uh, uh, you know, have done a great job of, of, of building this place. And we're happy that it's only four hours away from our US base. Uh, the uh, and well done to Paul Markart and the the guys uh, for tracking down the the webcam. You couldn't be at Silverstone at the weekend through some travel difficulties, delayed and and cancelled flights. I know that you and Ben were meant to be across, so you won't have seen the fan reaction to the two cars that were there in Garage 40 to the fan forum uh, that we had with the the dozen guys who came in to the meet the teams uh, you will have heard about it it was extremely positive Darren and I know how much you guys wanted to race but that really vindicates the decision to take the cars and continue to have a presence at Silverstone yeah we had another problem with um uh, uh I was going to do a joke there about Delta but I shouldn't um uh, yeah we, we got stuck in America Ben and I um which was a real shame uh, I mean it was a stupid travel schedule we, we'd had a, a very um important meeting on the Friday uh, um and literally left the office we're going to get straight on a plane come to Silverstone from the airport straight into a, a lunch and then the, the fan forums and stuff uh, so and then literally turn around go back to Heathrow and fly back to this test so um uh, I probably got another 10 hours of sleep over the weekend, but I'd much rather have been at Silverstone. But, yeah, I mean, I've got Paul Ryan sat next to me here. Um, he's obviously, you know, um, ma- you know, managing the, the marketing side with uh, with Jane and, and Lindsay, people behind the scenes would know, uh, doing a brilliant job. And they've given me some fantastic feedback of what the fans uh, were thinking about, uh, you know, what, what we did. And it was brilliant to see the pictures, you know, as someone that's bought, you might be able to hear in the background, actually, is that the, the car window. warming up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just uh, run it through its gears and stuff at the moment. They've um, we're just checking out some um, some of the uh, the data. Um, we're, we're we're trying to understand our data channels a bit better, so they're running through that while they're. Um, we'll put the team radio on in a minute if it, the car goes out uh, for you. But um, yeah, it was fantastic. And you know, as someone that was brought into the sport by my dad, the the best thing was 
seeing dads taking pictures of their kids sat in the P1 car, yeah, uh, which which was absolutely fantastic to uh, to see. And then you know the pictures of um, uh, the garage absolutely jam packed, and then other people's garages with uh, screens around it um, did make me laugh a little bit. Yes, the uh, Stuttgart wall was uh, was interesting, and that uh, that needs to go if I'm if I'm honest. Um, how's things going, Darren? Marketing consultant uh, John Heinhoff. <laughs> Future for me in the diplomatic corps, clearly. Um, how how is the testing of the GTRLM going? Uh, we obviously we knew you weren't going to be at Silverstone. You elected not to take the car to Spa in a couple of weeks' time. That's given you the opportunity to do this extra testing, which you wouldn't have been able to do. The guys, when we spoke to them on on Friday at the Meet the Team event, were very upbeat. Um, Mark Jenny, I think, put it the best, Darren, saying when you've got a pro- when you've got a project like this, the the steps that you make are big steps, and the more time that you can spend learning about the car, the bigger, the more often those big steps come. So, all right, I know you're a racer, you want to race, but this is kind of all good news in in the big scheme of things. We just had uh, Michael Crum hasn't driven the car for um, we, uh, was it three months and um, he's just got in literally just got in the car about two hours ago and and said it just feels like a completely different car and and what what's good now and this hasn't been the case um, uh, until sort of the last two tests was every try on the car goes in the direction we think it should go um, which makes the testing and, and the development very, uh, very quick. What's great, we've got, um, again, we've got a journalist here um, behind the scenes, Auto Hebdo. And, uh, you know, first of all, he, he can't believe the access he's getting um, to the to the programme. Um, and secondly, um, he, um, you know, really uh, can't believe the um, uh, speed of development. You know, we're talking about what things we've changed and how we're changing them and how the design gets done and how the manufacturer gets done. And uh, you know he's he's um, you know really impressed with that, and that's what we've been able to do um, is is make these updates, bring them to the circuit, which is you know just around the corner effectively, and and try them out and see if they work. The, the biggest frustrations are weather. I'm just looking out the window, getting it started to rain again. We've got about 50% of our um, uh, track time available due to bad weather um, in the last uh, two tests. So um, you know that's not ideal, but um, it is what it is, and we, we'll crack on. And what's the next big step then, Darren? When do you decide to pack everything up and come over to Europe in preparation for the Le Mans test? Do you leave that as close to Le Mans as possible or do you have to decant everything into some kind of European base? Yeah, we've got um, a a temporary base at Silverstone, which we'll send all the stuff to. Um, That that happens um, uh, sort of middle of uh, May. Uh, we'll then shake the cars down uh, in the UK um, and then uh, they just transport them down to Le Mans and then set up uh, down there for, um, you know, effectively uh, three weeks. So, yeah, it's um, it's all pretty close, isn't it? Um, I think it's 59 days, is it, to Le Mans? Oh, you haven't just said that, have you? Don't say that. Well, that is, yes. Uh, that's, that's as scary for me as it is for you. That just means I've got more work got more work to do in what state is is the gt rlm going to come to europe then are you is it where you want it to be is there still work to do Uh, and what hopes do you have what targets do you set if you like for where you're going to be at le mans it's a multiple year program so it doesn't have to go out and set land speed records in year one of course um it will come to europe 
uh, finished. Um, in fact, we're pretty set on the, the, the specification now. Um, I mean, literally, we're doing setup changes now. You know, we're not, uh, you know, having multiple changes. We, we've got our final um, front splitter design, which has been signed off this week. Uh, and literally, we're doing setup changes. Uh, you know, the good old-fashioned things like springs and dampers and caster and camber. Wow. And, all that sort of stuff, all that mumbo jumbo that the engineers talk about. So um, yeah, we, we, you know, so we're done there, and, and we're trying to get endurance running in, but you know, the weather's a little bit against us at the moment. Um, so uh, you know, we'll just keep running as much as we can. Don't want to disappoint you. It was 25 degrees and bone dry at Silverstone all day. Uh, oh, to, no. to... You know, all those all those things I was saying about, about a good idea to have a, um, a base outside of Europe because of the weather. And, uh, <laughs> It's coming back to haunt me. A um, couple of things just before we let you go on a, a more technical note that I've been able to uh, speak about in the past. Because now, of course, I've seen the car, um, uh, albeit you know uh, the cars that were at Silverstone the weekend. 16-inch diameter wheel rims and tyres that have a slightly higher profile than most of your competitors. What's the thinking behind uh, getting a Michelin uh, to supply you with those? And, and what what's particular challenges is that has that set for for your tire partner michelin um well again like uh, most things on this car this really is a um uh this really is a prototype and we're changing things or we're changing things um significantly at the beginning of the program uh for 2015 we'll run the 18 inch uh, wheels and tires so uh not the uh-huh. ones that you saw on the show car um and you know that's something else that we can uh, work on for for uh, 2016 so uh, you know, the, the story is whatever we come to Le Mans with in 15 uh, we already know what we want to go on in 16 and there's a, there's a big step change um that we can uh, that we can make in 16 which is which is quite exciting and you know some of the uh, the, the design guys are already working on the 16 car Zach Eakin who see Ben's number two Ben Bowlby's number two um, is um, uh, uh, working on next year's car design already. Of course, we've got a, a, a high downforce kit in, in de- mm-hmm. development for Nürburgring onwards. Um, and I've just been um, told it's actually 56 days to, to Le Mans. Um, so, um, yeah, so or 400 days to Le Mans 2016. Oh, stop it. Just... And while we've got num- while we've got numbers, we we are we are running with um, the um, 16 inches on the rear, uh, just right. to be to so the the fronts are 18, 16s on the rear. The Nismo University, the the open almost open source uh, for information uh, on all of the things that you guys are doing, including the GTRLM. I saw the video at the weekend, a brilliant initiative. It mentioned 1,250 horsepower. What we don't know yet is how that's split between the 3-litre twin-turbo V6 and your hybrid system. Are you, are you anywhere near being able to tell us what category 2, 4, 6 or 8 megajoules that you're going to run in yet, Darren? Uh, we know, but we're not uh, not saying just yet. Um, I think... Uh... This whole, and again, hopefully, um, you know, Nismo University, you'll be able to see uh, this whole conversation. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. This whole balance of uh, liquid fuel versus hybrid fuel versus weight is intriguing. I mean, absolutely intriguing. And, um, you know, we have got three or four different audiences we've got to talk to. You know, we've got to talk to more mainstream audiences, get people excited. That race at the weekend, I was watching it. It was a silly o'clock I got up on, on Sunday morning to watch the race from the Monza of the Blanc Pan and then the WEC race 
But that WEC race was one of the best races I've ever seen. I mean, it was unbelievable. And that's due to the fact that everyone's gone a different direction on, on that balance between the fuel and the, um, and the, uh, the hybrid systems. And to be fair, probably set up at, at Silverstone as well. Everyone was ignoring the, uh, the fantastic uh, high downforce that Audi had and the low drag that Porsche had, which helped as well. Everyone kept focusing on you know, the power sources. Um, and, and it's a massive challenge for everybody. You know, Audi, with all their experience, are only at four megajoules, you say. Uh, Porsche have stretched themselves to eight. Um, so it's absolutely intriguing. And, um, you know, we're, we've chosen um, a system to work on in which we think has got the best long-term potential. Um, but it's pushing the envelope for this year. Absolutely. I mean, it's a massive challenge. Um, but when we get it right, which we will, um, it will be... Um, you know, right up there with with that Porsche system we we saw so um, working so efficiently at the weekend. And and have you got your hybrid system working on the car right now? Because I know that's been one of the things that's held you up a wee bit. Uh, it's not in the car at the moment. Um, we're working, as I say, on on setup work. So we've got some um, uh, ballast uh, where it would be. Um, we've got a sort of parallel development program. Uh, we can learn a lot more. We can do a lot more running with that system on the dyno. Uh, there are four guys uh, here uh, from the hybrid um, uh, department that we're working with, um, and um, they're they're here, you know, observing and learning and taking data back to their guys as well. Uh, we're looking at potentially running the the, the, um, the system tomorrow, um, but uh, at the moment we're we're trying to get um, you know, this setup work done. Um, but again, the, the weather may uh, the weather may get in front of us. So, yeah, there's no no secret that it's a challenge. I think our um, you know, a couple of our friends in Formula One are finding exactly the same <laughs> issues. Um, the guys at Honda and, and, and others. Um, and what Mercedes have done in Formula One has shown that if you get it right, um, the hybrid system and, and particularly the interaction between car, chassis and hybrid system, you find a massive advantage. And that's what everyone's chasing. Uh, and that's why, you know, our car was designed around a particular system. Mm. And, you know, we're committed to making that work. Uh, thanks, Darren. Oh, just one more thing. Uh, eagle-eyed v- listeners have said there may be another car running around there with you. Are you allowed to say who that is? Yeah, yeah. We've got um, an LMP2 car. Uh, uh, Greaves. Uh, we we asked Greaves to bring a car over. Um, we've got um, various reasons for doing that, which you can speculate uh, what they are. But uh, you know, one of the great things is we're using it to give laps to. Um, uh, Gaetan, our new um, European winner of, of GT Academy, so he's been blatting around here. Uh, at the moment, he, he feels like he's drying the track out for the P1 car. You send him out just before uh, <laughs> it's time for, for slicks uh, on that. But you know, he's getting a huge amount of laps. And the other thing is, these guys don't know how lucky they are. He spent the, the car journey on the way from the airport for four hours with Mark Genet. Oh. Now, imagine you're in your first year of racing and you get to ask Mark four hours all the questions you want to ask as a budding racing driver and then he's got you know one of the top michelin engineers stood here talking to him about tires and why this circuit's very different to le mans in terms of the tire wear and blah 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 i mean it's just unbelievable but he's also jumps in the car and we're basically not turning laps for time in that car we're we're setting a a benchmark for various reasons that we're we're trying to um, understand various things about this circuit and obviously, we know the car very well, so it helps us understand the circuit a bit better. And we tell him, we set him a lap time, and he hits the lap time every single time. Pretty good. And, uh, you know, that's as, as a test group of test engineers for these guys, it's, um, it's fantastic. Um, 
But again, you know, the drivers have got stood around us. So just just before I came on to you, Michael Crim was stood next to me. You know, we have Mark Genet here. Harry Tinknell's in the car at the moment. Alex Buncombe's here as well. Um, and then we've got uh, Gaetan. Um, uh, Jan Marden returns up tonight. Um, uh, Max Chilton, yep, thank you, uh, has just left. He's off to do Indie Lights at the weekend. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's great um, you know, to have all these guys around. Darren, thanks very much. Um, the, the question of P2 and the new regulations has come up, but I don't think we've got enough time. Tim will kill me if I throw that in right now. But can we? Can, you, can I just have one sentence from you? Um, changes on chassis and on engines, is that something that you, as a spokesperson for Nismo, is that something that you asked for, wanted or would welcome? I think we probably need another session on it, John. Um, <laughs> All right. I, I, I've, I've got, I've got very, I've got very um, clear opinions on it, as you, as you would imagine. Um, and obviously, Nissan is a big supporter of LMP2 for a number of years. In, in effect, has is sort of held up LMP2 uh, as almost a single-engine supplier in some respects. Um, obviously, I've got a big voice on that. Um, and I think that um, you know the more debate needs to needs to happen. Um, All right, and, well, uh, I think we we'll leave yeah, it at we that. Put that another time. <laughs> All right, Darren. Uh, thanks to you and to Paul Ryan, who I seem to only have been talking to in this country a couple of a couple of days ago. And uh, keep us up to date with what's going on, DC. Cheers, mate. Well, follow at Nismo on Twitter, and um, if you can really bear it, follow. I am Darren Coxon. Yeah, I'm sure um, Dr. Ulrich doesn't tweet from his uh, tests when he's uh, blatting around uh, Sebring. But every now, every now and then, I get the, I feel uh, obliged to um, chat for the fans, and it's it's really good fun. Uh, you know what testing can be like uh, when the car's not running around. You 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 sort of try and find things to do. I've cleared my out, uh, mailbox, which is very unusual, as you saw from your inbox this morning. Um, and uh, so it's great to uh, converse with the fans. So. Yeah, Paul's getting some uh, some great photographs. We've got Patrick Goslin here capturing some fantastic shots. Um, and follow at Nismo to, to see those, and uh, they'll be downloading. And, uh, yeah, there's some really good images that, uh, that we'll show and, and some feedback from the guys. Bad timing. The car's literally just about to go out. So if you go onto the Corvette Museum webcams, uh, in about three minutes, you'll see the um, LMP1 GTR Nismo going out. There it is now. Fantastic stuff. Darren Cox, live uh, from Kentucky, uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, or just outside, uh, at least, uh, coming to, with a, a live report on the GTRLM. I have to keep telling him that it's GTRLM. Nice of them to name the, the car after Twice. us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is the Midweek Motorsport. We've got uh, just about 11, 12 minutes left to go. Paul Truswell and Nick Damon uh, are with us. And the uh, the one thing we haven't talked about, of course, is the FIA WEC at the weekend. Uh, Paul, you were on holiday, but managed to get back in time to do the analysis um, what what did we miss by just getting excited about the cars passing and repassing each other? What what did you deduce then from the average lap times? How do the three manufacturers stand, and how do the drivers within those three manufacturers stand? Um, I, I've forgotten who it was in the uh, post-race tech who suggested that Toyota might have been sandbagging. Um, somebody did. It was a tongue-in-cheek. It was a tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. No, no, it was, it was Johannes, I think, and so out of um, inevitability of Johannes, there was an element of tongue-in-cheek there. Um, I think if anybody was, sand- <clears throat> was sandbagging, it was Audi. Um, 
and indeed the the fastest car on the track was the number eight uh, was the number eight car not the number seven car uh, the number eight car was regularly the quickest car out there um not just with oliver jarvis behind the wheel either it's although that first stint from trellier when he dropped all the way back and then pulled rapidly back to the front cars and i think in that stint he set the fastest lap mm-hmm. uh, at the time yeah but then fesler didn't fesler do a, a quicker lap later on uh, no i think trellier was the, oh, okay uh, it was the 140.8 or something in his second stint he, yeah uh, he took the retook the fastest lap or took his own fastest lap um so trellier was the fastest lap in, in outright terms, but in terms of um, best averages, the the number eight car was uh, was best. Interestingly, uh, if you look at fastest drivers in the in the Audis, um, guess who was the slowest driver in number seven? Just in terms of their fastest lap. Uh, Lotterer must be asking us. For exactly, it was. Lotterer was the slowest of the three. Both Trellier and Fassler's fastest lap was quicker. But he, any lap from Lotterer. But he did that mighty, mighty triple stint. Indeed. Which you called a, 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 hero, a stint. hero stint. And it, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah. And, and unbelievably consistent, as well as being consistently quicker than anybody who was out in any of the other cars at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, Andre Lotterer has worked out how to drive these this breed of LMP1 cars. Very complicated cars, as we've said. It's not just a matter of going out and putting your foot flat on the floor and driving it round, because you've got to be controlling how much power you're using and how much fuel you're using all the time. Uh, so Lotterer, as you said, did uh, three stints, each of 28 laps, 84 laps in total. Uh, average lap time for his first stint was 143.16. Second stint, 143.68. Remember, that was on then used tyres. Uh, and then his third stint was on 143. 3.8. So all of those three stints averaging at the 143s. Fessler, uh, he did, as Nick pointed out at the time, a short, a single stint uh, second. He took over from Trellier at 44.6. And then his second stint towards the end of the race when the track was getting a little bit quicker, I think, 143.4. Um, and Trellier, again, his average, 143.3. All three of those Audi drivers in the number seven, very, very well matched. But in the number eight car, we had the situation where Jarvis and Duval were both quicker. Uh, and the average lap time for that car was around about a tenth of a second quicker than the number seven car, which won the race. Even with the problems that that car had, because Ollie had a, a, a nasty oscillation problem that they had to sort of, they wouldn't admit to it. No, there's nothing the matter with it. It wasn't the, absolutely wasn't anything to do with the cleverly linked suspension. I, I'm stripping out the slower laps. I'm taking, okay. uh, if you're looking in terms of the best 20%, which is uh, a good way of establishing um, the the absolute potential for the car, best 20%. Um, and as I say, the number eight car, a tenth of a second quicker than the number seven. Uh, the pair of them, the, the pair of those two Audis were around about three tenths faster than the Porsches and a second quicker than the Toyotas. Uh, it was an Audi track and it's particularly an Audi track one. Audi are running their high downforce or higher downforce, uh, which they were uh, at Silverstone. Typically they've run... Um, a split program at Spa before uh, before Le Mans. Um, I thought if if Audi didn't win at Silverstone that the, the rest of the season was going to be very difficult. Um, but I couldn't see anybody beating Porsche to Paul, and, and and so it happened. What do we think about the relative performance of Porsche then? Because I actually thought they did rather better than I than I certainly thought they they would do. Expected the 
speed over one lap, but what were their averages like in comparison? Were they the third best of the three manufacturers? Obviously, they lost a car early on. Uh, no, second best. I mean, they were, oh, really? They were, on average speeds, they're quicker than Toyota. Um, but then you would expect that because they're running a higher um, power car. Uh, Toyota are running the same power car, effectively, as they did last year in terms of their hybrid system. Uh, yes, I mean, but they're, they're using all of it this year, which they weren't last year. That's right. And I mean, I'd, I'd like to come on to kind of reflect on that point in a minute. Um, but in very broad terms, and it's a very rule of thumb, Porsche have upped their pace by about 4% over last year. Audi has upped their pace by about 3% over last year. Toyota have upped theirs by about 2%. So on a, on a rising scale, we've now got the situation where Audi seems to have the quickest car, Porsche, Porsche has the second quickest car, and Toyota has the third quickest car. For me, Toyota have the best all-round car in every circuit that we go to uh, for the season. I think Porsche will be very quick at Le Mans, particularly down the tubes. They've clearly got a, a slippery car. Audi right now, and we haven't seen their bodywork for Le Mans, have got a car that works very quick through fast sweepers. Silverstone, they loved it. And in fact... I, got, I, I think I did say Audi, we do the twisties best, the twiddlies best, and I described them as the slarty Bartfast of the of the WEC, which I'm sure will make it onto an Audi advertisement at some time in the near future. That could all change, of course, with low drag versions well, of the cars for Le Mans. Is, I mean, I'm asking this because I don't know, um, do Audi have a low downforce for Le Mans? I asked that question of Chris Renke, and he sidestepped it, almost perfectly however he did then say it has been our practice in the past to run different cars at spa and evaluate what we might do when we go to le mans of course mm. they've got one yeah i think they have and they turn out with a long tail to what four years well, ago three years ago a longer well, tail and, within and, the regulations yeah, yeah, but longer yeah. than the one they were running correct? and the regulations do allow you to have a lower downforce uh, on that subject it's interesting that um if you compare top speeds through the speed trap at silverstone this year versus last year, all three, Porsche, Audi and Toyota, were slower through the speed trap than they were last year. I would have lost money on that. Absolutely. So anything that the manufacturers are telling you about they're going to reduce drag, that it's nonsense. All they're doing is increasing power so they can increase downforce. They're not trying, certainly not at Silverstone, to... Um, to reduce drag, they're trying to increase downforce, and as I say, top speeds, all three cars, top speeds lower than they were <clears throat> in uh, in last year's Silverstone practice and uh, race, because of course race was a little bit funny because the weather was uh, all over the place, but if you look at practice, qualifying, and the race, always slow. Um, quick thought about the full course yellow, just over, oh, just under 9 minutes, 8.41 or something, I seem to remember you yep. sending the message of a full course yellow split into two uh, sessions no safety car came out onto the circuit um say what you like about whether it needed to be a completely neutralized circuit but we got back to green flag racing very very quickly well, well absolutely three laps in total the first stint was two two laps uh, basically under under yellow and the second one was one lap under yellow and in fact there was um there was one car, um, one of the Porsches, I think it was the number 18 car, um, that didn't even cross the start-finish line whilst the yellow was being shown. The yeah. yellow was shown after it got, went across the start-finish line, and by the time it got back to the start-finish line on its next lap, the yellow had gone. So it didn't even cross the start So it didn't do a full lap under full-course yellow. That's right. Uh, who, who won and who lost with that? Because there were some odd strategic 
decisions made, particularly on that under that first yellow. I was I was shouting at the screen that uh, Lena should have brought the uh, the Audi in, or whoever was making the decisions uh, should have brought the Audi either of the Audis in, because it seemed to me to be sensible to come in as soon as the yellow was shown. It wasn't um, that far away from the window, was it? No, well, it wasn't. And in any case, you're, you're better off being in the pit lane. Um, and as Nick keeps saying, Silverstone's pit lane is a lot shorter than the track. So travelling at 60 kilometres an hour down the pit lane, as you have to, is going to be a, sh- a quicker way of going around Silverstone than it is to go around the track at 60 kilometres an hour. Um, so it just seemed to be the, the, the logical thing to do to bring them in. Uh, and if you look what at did the, it cost them then by not stopping then, do we think? The, the two Audis, I reckon, lost uh, respect. Because remember, they swapped round as well, because the 8 yeah. and the 7 uh, were in order 8-7 as they came in uh, and as they came out of the pits it was 7 ahead of 8 um, so the number 7 lost 26 seconds I reckon and the number 8 lost 36 sorry it's the kind of in writing 32 seconds so around about 30 seconds lost by the two Audis as a result of coming in on the second yellow flag lap rather than the first yellow flag lap which is what Seb Buemi did in the number 1 Toyota because effectively it went green before they finished their, their stop. They just got out as it was going green. Right. Um, but it, as I say, the overall effect. And the trouble is you can't quite tell whether it happened in the pits, whether it happened out on the track, whether it happened because they were being a little bit more cautious under the yellow, um, you know, in terms of sector times. The, the yes, full one course. man's 60 kilometres an hour is another one's 57. Yeah, exactly. And of course, at, at those speeds... You know, big it, percentage. It, it makes a difference quite quickly. Um, so you've got to be right on the button uh, very rapidly. Um, so, but overall, I mean, given that you only had that two full course yellows, not safety car, the cars didn't bunch up as a result of that mm. full course yellow. They should have maintained pretty much position. And yet we still had 15 seconds separating the top three at the end of the race. Yep. The top three were from three different manufacturers with, as Darren was just saying, totally different approaches to the whole hybrid equation. And I mean, that is a massive, massive, massive advertisement for, for this kind of racing. Uh, and for the regulations. Yeah. The openness of, of regulations. Paul, thanks for hanging Hang on. Hang on. And being with us. What? What was the highest wind speed? Oh, yes. What was the highest wind speed? 37 kilometres an hour, just as the race started. The Interesting thing. After fast. the race started, uh, the wind dropped. It was coming from the south. It didn't flatter me, I can tell you. <laughs> Whipping right through me, it was. Have you, have you stuck your head out of a car window travelling at... 40 kilometres an hour. Yeah, it's quite windy. Blow it away. Uh, Can we extrapolate anything for Spa, for Le Mans and the season beyond? Um, Are you seeing how many laps people will do at Le Mans? Is it still going to be 10 and 11 and 12 and 13? uh, 14 for Porsche, 13 for everybody else. Right. Doesn't that give give Porsche the win? Mm. They keep going. No, because they're not quick enough. Well, that's that's a big... And they can't keep the tyres under them. The... um, of course, tyres is less of an issue at Le Mans because there's no restriction on tyres at Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a restriction uh, in six-hour races. And you saw that big incident that Lieb had at the end of the race because he'd had to use the used set of tyres, the second used set of tyres from qualifying. Even then, he would have also had to have used one set. You have to use one set of tyres twice Correct. and the set of, that you've used in qualifying. Um, but the other big factor which is going to affect Le Mans is because of the way that the we talk about two, four, six and eight megajoules, yep. that is the megajoules that the cars are allowed to deploy during a lap of Le Mans. If you go around another circuit, it's prorated down to yeah. the length of the circuit, mm-hmm. but multiplied by 1.5. Um, 
1.55 to be precise. And so that means that if you're struggling to produce your full megajoule capacity, or the problem is not producing it, it's harvesting it, it's getting the energy into the system in the first place. To As we saw to with Toyota under full course yellow. Yeah, because if you don't co collect the energy, you're not going to be able to deploy it again. So at Le Mans, there is less of a problem, particularly for Porsche and for Toyota, who have got to collect more, um, but there's less of a problem for them to do it because they've only got to collect exactly six or eight megajoules of energy over the course of the lap, and that's going to be easier for them to do. And they have some breaking, big braking events for, in Toyota's case and big accelerating events, which is where Porsche are harvesting from in their case. Yeah, and I, th I think what will, what will happen is that Audi's advantage that we've seen at uh, Silverstone may be repeated at Spa, but it depends what configuration they're running because of this uh, experimentation that we're expecting them to do. But I think at Le Mans, then the whole thing is going to be very much closer and it's going to boil down to, in my view, what Le Mans should be about, which is running the car perfectly, running it cleanly, yep. not having any mechanical issues. Remember last year we had every single car in the LMP1 class had some kind of um, issue, of issue yep. uh, either mechanical or accident, um, which, which affected its race. And so for this year, Le Mans is going to be A, close, because I've just described how much closer it's going to be as a result of the way the regulations work, uh, and B, it's all going to be about staying out of trouble. Uh, Audi have been the people who have increased their hybrid energy more than anybody else by 100%. By percentage-wise, yeah, yes. It's now, uh, it's now uh, four megajoules, it was two. Um, it's the same amount of energy as... Toyota have gone up from six to to uh, excuse me, it's Porsche have gone up from six to eight. Neither of them have ad added any weight to the car. Um, the new aero package seems to have proven that there wasn't actually much wrong with the Audi engine to start with. Um, they've got a better balance on the car. It's wearing its tyres very nicely, indeed. Is there an option for Audi to use this additional energy that they've got to stretch their fuel and to, which is clearly what the, or Porsche can do uh, to stretch their fuel to get the longer run or do they not need to do it at Le Mans because the extra speed will out in the end Porsche went for a very brave strategy at Silverstone from relatively early on they, they wanted to save they knew they had only the chance that they have was to save a pit stop mm -hmm. Lena worked that out we worked it out and you know they, that was a brave strategy that was only a six-hour race if they can re replicate that at Le Mans potentially can they save four pit stops that would be huge um, yes, but um, generally, a little bit of extra speed will serve you better over the course of the 24 hours because you're doing 200 laps. And if you can go a second a lap quicker, then you can afford an extra pit stop. Um, I think it's something like a second and a half a lap that you have to be able to yeah. go quicker. And, and if you can do a second and a half a lap quicker, then you can... Audi were tripling their tyres last year and doubling them this time. And then it was a quadrupling occasion. Yeah. Not last year, but the year before. Yeah, yeah. and so therefore, you think if you've got a slight tyre issue, you're going to throw away that advantage of one pit stop or three pit stops, let's say, they just about. Because the tyre changing process is 30 seconds to 1 minute 30. So yeah. it, they're going to have to get a, a severe handle on their tyre wear. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, I don't think anybody knows. I mean, and we, that's we, great. Which is. And of course, it, so we just have a caveat, of course. One of the reasons that Audi would have been lighter on its loafers was because they're running high downforce. Don't forget, one of the effects of low downforce is higher tyre wear. Correct. 
Is it uh, easier absolutely. to save four pit stops over 24 hours and one pit stop over six hours? Yes. There we are. I'll tell you for why. <laughs> Have you ever been out for dinner with just you and Mrs. Gray? Yes. That would be and his mother. One bottle of wine is just right, isn't it? No. <laughs> definitely now, not. When you well, go assume out, that it is. When you go out for dinner with four of you, two bottles of wine is never enough. No, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. And for exactly the same reason, this is typical Truswellian logic, um, it's far easier over a longer distance to, get to, to drink more wine, yes. To uh, create more options. I think the other thing is that because of the way the regulations are written specifically for Le Mans, you've got more opportunity to make the regulations work for you. And if you've designed a car like Porsche have to go longer, um, their rocket ship pace was clearly aero rather than power or energy related. Um, and particularly you, you, now yeah. you've told me about the top speeds, yes. which I would have said black was white wasn't true. You, you, I mean, you, you're, you're right in the an analysis, John. Um, the only thing that Porsche doesn't have is it can't go more quickly and use more fuel mm. because it can't use more fuel because the regulations say you're not allowed to, thou shalt not use more fuel. Mm -hmm. So whereas Audi can go more slowly and use less fuel, yes. Porsche can't go more quickly and use more fuel. To catch up if they were so needy. Audi so. has a bit more flexibility in what it can do. Porsche, because they're in that high megajoule, they're kind of compelled by the regulations to use the electrical aspects of their of their power unit to to its extent, full its extent. But there is an opportunity, and all the manufacturers have told me this, that you can decide whether to make the car go faster with the energy that you harvest and deploy, or whether to go longer on fuel. Yes, sorry, yes, what you can't sorry, do... Are they... They're now nailed to eight. They can't drop back to six. No, Correct. they're nailed to eight. Effectively, you're, you're homologating your system for a season. Um, and you can't just say, oh, I'm going to go to eight for Le Mans, and then I'm going to drop back to six again. Because don't forget, it affects how much fuel you no, exactly, use. Yeah, yeah. It's the balance between the internal combustion engine and the hybrid energy that you are harvesting and deploying. I think one of the things I think that Audi have found, and I think this could be crucial, is I think that they possibly are slightly more flexible with how they use their hybrid energy in terms of whether they use it for big grunt out of corner, all-wheel drive, not traction limited, whoosh, thank you very much, or whether they use it when they're lifting off and allow it to continue the car accelerating. I think they've got more flexibility in that than possibly anybody else. Porsche have got two different systems, don't forget, Nick. Um, and one of them is a very trick system that has something to do with the turbocharger, but not quite, which someone who is very clever and who has seen it has told me he's never seen anything like it in any form of motorsport ever. But that that's is on a, that's more on acceleration and actually driving the car rather than slowing down. So not only do, do they have completely different systems and do they deploy them differently and use them in different ways, they're actually harvesting in different ways yeah, as well. Toyota can harvest under um, under acceleration as well. Yes, they can. Um, so in Although they don't like to. But they can. Um, and, and so, no, I, I think it's, it's as ever, hugely open. Um, 
and it's it's exciting. We normally throw the well, it's Le Mans and anything can happen card, and in fairness, the <laughs> the race seldom. Uh, disappoints in uh, that respect. This year, we don't even have to throw that card in because we actually really don't know because we've got a set of regulations that have provided us with these three for this year, four for next year when this and get everything up and running. Um, these three different equations, if you like, or answers to the equations that the, the ACO have, have put out there. And and I'm not sure over 24 hours which one prevails. No, and um, I, I'm not I, even I, sure over six hours. I know we saw Silverstone, but I don't think Audi are going to run away with the championship, Paul. No, no, I don't think so either, because um, because racing's not like that. And it, it in any case, it wasn't an Audi one-two. Um, you know, we had this situation where um, you know we had an Audi. Uh, a Toyota and a Porsche on the podium. I should say Audi, Porsche, Toyota on the podium in that order. Um, and you know, that, so it, it's all mixed up, and it's 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 good in that point of from that point of view. It's open. The key is going to be the test day because I think the teams the teams don't know either, so they're going to have True. to use the test day to find out more openly than we have seen in the past, shall we say? Yeah, I mean they're going to have to find out what the fuel usage is, how they can harvest, where they can harvest. So there's not going to be any point in sandbagging your way around and not getting real data, is no, that what you say? Absolutely. The test day will reveal things um, and we'll then be able to go into the race saying, I think this is going to happen and then we can be surprised. Thank you very much for being with us tonight, Paul. Uh, you'll be able to hear the test day, of course, uh, live here on RadioLamont.com, the only place we have uh, that the only place that you will find live coverage. Before that, it's Spa for WEC. And before that, it's IMSA Radio. Fired back up again for this weekend and the third round of the Tudor United Sports Car Championship. Thanks to Andy Prio, to Darren Cox, to Marshall Pruitt, to Nick Damon, Paul Trustwell, to the responsible adult Eve Hewitt, uh, and of course to our executive producer up in London. And that's all we've got time for tonight. Not quite. There's... Oh, really? The news that no one is talking about. The stories that aren't reported anywhere else. And for valid editorial reasons. Pointless press release of the week on Midweek Motorsport. He asked if I still wanted to do this, and I said I'll be very quick, and he said okay. So we're going okay, to do it. Quick, then. Uh, this, By the way, uh, uh, Lotterer was interviewed in the French magazine this week, says Matt Fernandez, and he confirmed they would run a low drag car for Audi at Spa. So that just finishes that off. Pointless press release of the week. Tim, what have we one, got this week? Was it a good week or a not so good week? It was a poor Pointless. week. There was one that I thought was particularly uh, pointless, but which I can't use because it would offend uh, some of uh, our sponsors, I think. So <laughs> I'll just leave Send you with that to one. Send that to me later. Uh, which says uh, it opens with a question which is never good for press release and the question is which political party do you consider best represents the interests of the road haulage and logistics industry like Cymru and we'll leave you with that yes there's no time to explain Uh, the llama's gone for an HGV licence This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.